The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Bell Gunnis, Hell's Bell, Lady Bluebeard, Black Widow. Bell Gunnis had a lot of nicknames and a changing legal name, as you'll find out today. This Norwegian-American immigrant of many names, this daughter of poor Scandinavian farmers, would be an incredible American dream rags to riches success story if she just wouldn't have made her fortune off of a series of cold-blooded murders, most of which took place in LaPorte, Indiana. On her farm, a farm that became known as the Murder Farm. She buried over 10 people, including her own daughter, on that murder farm, and she fed who knows how many other victims to her hogs. Bell killed to collect on insurance fraud. She ran numerous murderous romance scams, and she killed to cover her tracks in Chicago and Indiana, mainly in Indiana at the dawn of the 20th century. And then right when it looked like she might finally get caught, takes just a bit of justice. It appears that she faked her own death, sacrificing not one, not two, but three of her own children to do so. And then looks like she got away with the murders of anywhere from 13 to 42 people to possibly many, many more. We'll never know exactly how many people Bell killed. We'll never know exactly how many lonely men answered her newspaper ads looking for a man with some cash to invest in and help run a beautiful farm alongside a loving woman. Men who, with rare exception, were never heard from again once they answered that ad. We do know an awful lot about her life, though, thanks to all of the interviews conducted in the sensationalized wake of the discovery of her murder farm, interviews with Bell's family, neighbors, lawyers, bankers, other business associates, and more. And all that information gave us more than enough fodder to spin a darkly delightful, bloody little murderous yarn on another true crime edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Work can wait, meat sacks. It's time suck time. Happy Monday. Welcome back inside the cult of the curious. If you're not curious, get the fuck out of here. 
We don't, we don't want your I already know everything there is to know about everything kind of poisonous energy killing our vibe. I'm Dan Cummins, Bojangles ball scratcher, Nimrod's toothpick, Lucifina's pool boy, and yes, that was the real Michael motherfucking McDonald you just heard in the intro today. Yamo for real. Uh, met the sweet bar to the suck at a meet and greet at Northern Quest Casino just outside of Spokane, Washington last Tuesday. And he was nice enough to say what you just heard. Does he actually know what time suck is? Uh, no, no, he doesn't. Would he have said that if he did? Ah, uh, I'm not sure that he would have. Uh, do I hope to now build a relationship with him? Of course I do. If this show gets big enough, I want to get him on here for a duet. I want to debut new tracks off his future albums. I'm not even kidding. Yamo time suck. Ho, ho, ho. Yamo fulfilled destiny. Recording today in the Suck Dungeon, Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. Yeah, I'm happy today. Thanks once again to our Patreon Space Lizards for helping us to donate $2,600 this month to 100-plus abandoned dogs of Everglades, Florida Rescue. Link in the episode description. If you'd like to find out more, donate yourself. Donating even more money to another charity next week, all thanks to Space Lizard support. Thanks to all the time suckers who came out to the Liberty Township Funny Bone near Cincinnati, Ohio, this past Friday and Saturday. Thanks for letting me make fun of your spaghetti and cheese and hobo chili local cuisine abomination. I uh, had a lot of fun. Charlotte, North Carolina at the Comedy Zone this weekend, August 1st through the 3rd. Hope to capture the magic. Last time I was in Charlotte, had so much fun last time. This Sunday, August 4th, Richmond, Virginia at the Funny Bone. It's going to be packed. It's going to be some fun shows. August 9th and 10th in Orlando at the Improv doing stand-up. Sunday, August 11th, a live Ant Hill Kids cult suck in Orlando. Queen of the Suck, Lindsay, going to be there in Orlando. So will Tom and Dan from a mediocre time with Tom and Dan. I can't wait to blow their minds with that horrific tale. That's going to be a lot of fun. Hopefully this time we'll get it recorded uh, after that. But yeah, those great guys. Mediocre time with Tom and Dan. Great podcast. After that, Thursday, August 29th at the Comedy Store in Hollywood. Showbiz. That's how they do it in Hollywood. And then August 30th, September 1st, August 31st, uh, at the Comedy Store in La Jolla, just outside of San Diego. Uh, tickets selling well for the special taping. Upcoming, I'm feeling good about this next hour special. It's going to be the most ridiculous shit uh, I've ever said on stage. At the Crow Football Room, Detroit, October 18th. Looking like both shows are going to sell out uh, quite a bit in advance. Get tickets early if you want to go. Ticket links in the episode description. Two more quick things, then we're off and running. And the first thing is free. For you Pandora peeps, for you stand-up fans, comedian Chad Daniels and I did another round of Behind the Bit. It's our second one, talking about tracks off our most recent stand-up albums and about how much life has changed the past two years for us both after doing stand-up for a long, long time. Just search Behind the Bit, Dan Cummins, on your Pandora app, and it shows right up, and you can listen to it in order this time. You don't have to bounce around. They got the player figured out. No fucking around. One short ad. If you don't, if you don't have premium, if you do have Pandora premium, no ads, and then off you go. Hope you like it. A little behind-the-scenes stand-up information. And finally, a question. Do you like showbiz? Do you even know how do they do it in Hollywood? Got a new Albert Fish tea in the store. Not as aggressive this time with the graphics. No peanut butter butter mentioned on this one. This tea is all about doing what you have to do to make it in the world of showbiz. It's all about Hollywood. The shirt is uh, is made out of 110% creamy, fresh, steamy. Hot out of the whole peanut butter. Mmm! Just like mom used to make. Because that is how they do it in Hollywood. And this is how we do it with Bell Gunnis here today. (music) 
Bell Gunnis is our focus on this, the 150th episode of Time Suck. 150 consecutive Mondays of the suck. That feels really good to me. I'm pumped up. Coming up on three years. Haven't missed a Monday yet. I'm proud of that. Hope I can keep it going for a long time. Your support makes it possible. And I thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the case of Bell Gunnis. Such a unique case on so many levels. As a female serial killer, Gunnis is quite a bit more brutal than most other mass killing women. While murder by poison is the most common way for women to commit serial killings, which Gunnis did, uh, Bell also seemed to have bludgeoned many of her victims to death, which was unnecessary since they were already poisoned in many cases. Also, possessing butcher skills uh, cut them into pieces after they were dead. Also accused of feeding a lot of those pieces to hogs. She was not squeamish, Bell Gunnis. Also unique for the amount of victims for a female serial killer, thought by uh, most Bell experts to have killed over 40 people, that would put her in the top five for female serial serial killers if all of those murders were 100% confirmed. Perhaps the most uncommon aspect about the Bell Gunnis story is how she she never got into, into trouble. She came close to getting caught several times, but time after time, she would commit crimes from fraud to arson to murder. And, and even when she was basically caught red-handed, would still get away with it. And then when it finally looked like she was going to get caught, well, you, you'll find out what she did to escape. So let's begin examining the life and crimes of quite possibly the most prolific female serial killer in the United States history, a woman with even less maternal instincts than Casey Anthony, with today's Time Suck Timeline. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a Time Suck Timeline. Bell Gunnis was born on November 11th, 1859 as Brynhild Paulstadter Storset in a very rural area of central Norway. Big time humble beginnings. She was born near the lake of Selbu, near the west coast of Norway, growing up in a place called Ingbia that the internet doesn't give a shit about because I'm guessing around 10 people live there, if they even live there at all now. And, and it's, it's more of a local name for a certain area as opposed to a proper town. Uh, I get it. Uh, there were communities like that where I grew up. I lived for two years in Pinehurst, Idaho, not the town of Pinehurst, not far from Coeur d'Alene, the patch of about 10 houses with a small general store slash cafe slash gas station and a church, uh, the, the little area that at least used to have a sign on the on the highway that said Pinehurst. I went to school with kids from Race Creek, Slate Creek, Pollock, Fall Creek, Lucille, Elk Creek, uh, even though there are no Idaho towns by those names. They're just terms to describe areas where a few families lived. That seems to be what Ingbia, Norway, uh, is, or at least what it was. Really, people you know, claim Selbu as her, as her hometown. Ingbia was uh, one of several tiny little hamlets located within the district of Selbu, which is located about seven hours north of Oslo, and not far, about 60 kilometers or 37 miles from central Norway's largest city of Trondheim. Trondheim was the capital of Norway during the Viking Age, and about 200,000 metal-loving Scandinavians live there today. Metallica just did an outdoor show there on July 13th. Based on the YouTube video, it looks like about a quarter of the city showed up for it. It's pretty badass. I listened to that concert while putting together a lot of today's notes. Metal feels appropriate for Bell's Black Widow tale. Other than Trondheim, almost no one lives in this part of Norway. The population density of uh, Selbu, very low then. Even today, the area has only about 4,000 people in total. One estimate has the population at the time of Bell's life around 5,400, mostly farmers and fishermen. The future serial killer's full name of Brindhild Paulstadter Storset 
comes from the custom of including the name of the farm on which your family lived and worked in your name. Belle's family worked on a farm called the Storset Farm. Uh, good thing her family didn't work on the uh, Dingleberry Farm or the Shit for Brains Farm. Would have ended up with a way less desirable name. Very little is known about Brynhild's earliest years. There are a few official documents, excuse me, few official documents, uh, that were laboriously dug up later by historians, including confirmation records, census records, and the like. But reliable facts about her background, details about her childhood, pretty sparse. Her sharecropper and former stonemason father, Paul Peterson Storset, was a native of the area and one of its poorest members. That, I feel like that says a lot. I don't get the feeling that this area is full of a lot of hoity-toity folk. Not a lot of gated communities. Probably, you know, a few relatively well-off farm owners and then just a bunch of very poor farmers. And Paul was one of the poorest of those poor farmers. He leased about an acre of the Storset farm where he raised a few cows, sheep, and goats, grew just barely enough barley, oats, and potatoes to keep his wife, Barrett Olstadter, and their eight children from starving. Eight kids. I guess we know how these two kept warm in the terrible Norwegian winters in the days before heaters. This part of Norway averages freezing temperatures for five months out of the year. Brynhild was the youngest of Paul and Barrett's children. How adorable. The future monster was once a cute baby girl of the family. Isn't that a weird thought that all cold-blooded serial killers were once cute little babies? Like other poor Nordic children of the time, Brynhild was expected to perform a variety of chores from an early age, including milking, churning, drawing water, watching over the cattle to ensure they didn't wander off. All this work would make her a strong child and she would grow to be a strong as hell woman, like genuinely physically strong. Based on accounts of her later life, if she would have only had powerlifting to channel her energy into instead of fraud and murder, she could have set some strength records that might still stand today. She was later like like weirdly strong. Because of her family, or excuse me, because her family couldn't afford, you know, hardwood for the family fire, she was also sent out daily to, to collect snurkvist, tiny dried up twigs, of the spruce tree normally used for kindling. That's when you know that you're super duper poor. When you can't afford proper wood for the family fire. When, when you got to keep the family warm with snurkfish twigs. Because of the twig situation, some of her neighbors gave her the demeaning nickname. It's a snurkfish pala, roughly translated as Paul's twig daughter. <laughs> this made me laugh so hard when I first read it. That to me is the exact type of insult I would make up if I was parodying some absurd Scandinavian character. I don't know why it just reads very Scandinavian to me. Ooh, look at who we're having here, huh? If it isn't Paul's twig daughter. Where's your twigs, twig daughter? Ooh, look at the twig daughter. Cry her little twig tears. Cry, twiggy, tr- cry. Take your tiny sticks. Run away to home with your snark fist. Later insults would tend to be directed at Paul's twig daughter's appearance. As Brynhild grew, it's apparent to many that she was not going to be a wildly attractive person. According to some accounts, at least as an adult, when frowning, her face strongly resembled a toad. I thought this was a pretty cruel way to describe somebody. When I looked at several pictures of her when she was older, not not entirely wrong. Although, I got to say, there are a few pictures of her when she's a young woman uh, where I think she's pretty hot, actually. But beauty is in the eye of the beholder, beholder, and most did not seem to behold any beauty when looking at Belle. Descriptions from years later would paint a picture of a woman with a large head, small eyes, short nose, and a wide, fat-lipped mouth. Man, women sadly get judged by contemporaries far harsher than men usually. And when Belle was judged, she tended to get judged very harshly. When it comes to serial killers, though, generally not an attractive lot. You know, just, I mean, Bundy was the exception. Belle was, I think, far more attractive than like a John Wayne Gacy or Albert Fish. 
or beady-eyed Gary Ridgway. Gunness would manage to pull in some pretty handsome and healthy and wealthy weans. So for whatever she may have lacked in the looks, she apparently made up for in charm. Back to her childhood, uh, in June of 1874, at the age of 14, Brynhild was confirmed at a local evangelical Lutheran church. Her religious instructor, Pastor Agathon Hanstein, who was well-known as the most strict preacher the region had ever had, according to a contemporary, evaluated her as being good in religious knowledge and diligence, a ranking that he said only half the girls obtained. And then he said, but to be fair, it is easier for Bryn Hill to focus on Jesus since he's the only man who could ever love her. I mean, for Christ's sake, look at her fucking face. That face is why Jesus wept. And that was, that was pretty harsh, pretty brutal words coming from a pastor that I, of course, made up. Uh, that same year, the future mass murdering Belle was hired out as a dairy maid to a neighbor named Roddy, who would later describe her as a diligent human being and always behaved well. So some, you know, Norwegians thought she was hardworking, respectful, God-fearing. Others didn't care for Paul's twig daughter. She was referred to by other neighbors as a liar, full of unpretty tricks, referred to uh, as scum on society. When Brynhild was just a little kid, an older sister moved to the United States. And she began to dream to move into America as well and become wealthy. No more burning twigs. But what about murder? When did she first turn to killing? Perhaps as early as 1877, when she was either 17 or 18. Something allegedly happened at some point that year. We don't have the exact date. Uh, Brynhild possibly turned into a murderer or at the very least a person who started to fantasize about murder. Or maybe she didn't have any thoughts. This is speculation. I, I say all this because, you know, the sources we found, they could not verify for sure that anything happened to Belle in 1877, but there's a lot of stories that I decided to include because it is part of her legend. According to one version of this story, Brynhild attended a country dance in 1877 while pregnant. And at this dance, she was attacked by an unarmed man who kicked her in the stomach, causing her to miscarry. This man, who was known to come from a rich family, was never prosecuted by Norwegian authorities. In another version of the tale, Brynhild worked for a wealthy landowner who impregnated her. This already feels more likely than the, the tale of the unknown man to me. The landowner and Brynhild were sleeping together while Brynhild worked and lived on his farm. Then she got pregnant. Then he beat her up, punching her repeatedly in the stomach to induce a miscarriage. And there are similar versions, other versions of the story, many claiming to have come from those who knew her, all based around some dude getting Brynhild pregnant, then beating her until she miscarried, then getting away with it and having nothing to do with her. This experience, if it even happened, could obviously drastically change somebody's outlook on humanity forever. Me personally, I'm not sure I buy it. Bell's later murders, similar to H.H. Holmes, the serial killer she reminds me of, seem to be motivated primarily by money. And they were very calculated and planned out murders and typically not very messy. Cold killings committed for insurance fraud as opposed to emotional killings based out of revenge for being victimized earlier in life. That's just my two cents. Once she got to America a few years later, there would be no more speculation as to whether or not she was killing. She began to for sure murder. In 1881, 21-year-old Brynhold set out for the third largest Norwegian settlement in the world at that time outside of Norway, Chicago, Illinois. Did not know Chicago had such strong Scandinavian roots. Odin loved the Windy City. Chicago in the 1880s had just rebuilt itself from the ashes of a massive fire. And I should say in the world, outside of Scandinavia, definitely third largest settlement in the United States. I'm rethinking my, my world call there. I think it was written as the US. I don't know why I, I fishtailed it up to world there. Uh, Chicago in the 1880s had just rebuilt itself from the ashes of a massive fire that had made a third of its citizens homeless overnight in 1871. 
It quickly regained its economic strength, became one of the world's most modern cities. With almost 20,000 Norwegians living in Chicago by the time Brynhild was ready to move there, those who preceded her set up Norwegian communities that had Norwegian language newspapers, schools, even churches. It was pretty easy to have a life and get by, and you didn't have to learn English if you didn't want to. Norwegian immigrants have a long history in Chicago. They were among the earliest settlers to the area, establishing a colony when uh, Chicago was nothing more than just a cluster of crude timber buildings planted on the swampy shores of Lake Michigan. In 1850, there were 562 Norwegians living in Chicago, making them the third largest immigrant group in the area after the German and Irish. Ten years later, the number had increased threefold. By 1870, Norwegian-born Chicagoans numbered more than 8,000. The Norwegian communities took pride in their low crime rates and their clean streets. And then in the late 1870s, one of Brynhild's sisters, Olina, who was 10 years older than Brynhild, moved to Chicago, where she'd met and married another Norwegian named John R. Larson. It was Olina who changed her name to Nellie when she arrived in the U.S., who invited Brynhild to come live with her. And then Olina Nellie is who seems to have also paid to bring Brynhild Bell to America. Uh, Brynhild's quest would first start with a voyage from Trondheim, Norway, to the English port city of Hull aboard the steamship Tasso. Not an easy trip. I get seasick and can't handle modern boats. Not on the ocean. Only reason I survived a cruise earlier this year was because I was literally taking three different motion sickness medications at the same time, and I was sleeping about 15 hours a day. Uh, I went out about 100 yards from shore, uh, what was supposed to be just a little little 30-minute little sailboat trip with my son Kyla recently in Tulum, Mexico, on a tiny sailboat in the Caribbean where the water was not choppy at all, again, very near the, the, the beach, and then I asked to come back after about 10 minutes because I knew I'd be thrown up if we stayed out in the water much longer. I would have quite possibly vomited myself to death aboard the Tasso. And those long coming to America voyages across the Atlantic have always sounded like a nightmare to me. I would have just stayed in the old country for sure. During the four-day crossing of the North Sea, the bulk of the Tasso's travelers remained below decks. Ugh, can't imagine how terrible. In steerage, huddled in groups, chilling on the narrow wooden shelves that served as bunks. Even in good weather, the Tasso was apparently not the best built ship. Tended to roll about on the waves. And as various letters and journal entries attest, seasickness was so common that, that even passengers accustomed to sailing often made ill by the pervasive stench of vomit. I would have for sure died. They would have just found me laying in a pool of my own tears and vomit. For those who could stomach the stench enough to eat, the ship offered three meals daily. Though promotional brochures described the task's menu in glowing terms, the testimony of several passengers tell a different story. One passenger said, for breakfast, there was always sweet tea without milk and dry hard biscuits, the same for supper. There was butter, but it was so rancid that we could not digest it. Fun. For dinner, soup with meat, but there was no taste to the soup and the meat was as salty as herring. One day we had salted fish with a dash of soup, but it was inedible. We just ended up dumping our portions out into the sea. <laughs> that shit must have been truly terrible. Because have you ever seen what Norwegians actually enjoy to eat? Old dried cod, sheep's brains, still delicacies in Norway today. When someone used to eating lutefisk and smalahuv is complaining about the food, you know it's very, very bad. Another observer wrote about the particularly vile upper deck of the ship, saying small, cramped, dark spaces without water. The entrance is in no way protected from the weather. Altogether, more evil-smelling, unsatisfactory places are difficult to imagine. Wow, okay. If Yelp had existed, I feel like the Tasso would have had a consistent one-star rating. When the voyage was finally over, 
Most of these vomit-covered steamers docked in Quebec, New York, or Boston. From there, the new arrivals from uh, Norway would, would make their way by boat, rail, and wagon to their final destinations. The most popular places were Minnesota, Illinois, uh, Wisconsin, the Dakotas, and Washington State. Most settled in small farm communities, although others chose Nordic clusters in cities like Minneapolis, Seattle, and especially Chicago. Shortly after arriving in Chicago, moving in, moving in with her, her big sister and her husband, Brynhild, like Nellie and countless other uh, immigrants before her, adopted a new American name. That's when Brynhild Paul Stoddard Storset became Bella Peterson. Bella would later be shortened further to Bell. I like it. I like it way easier on American tongues. And it's got to be kind of fun to be able to change your name. You know, pick something out when you get older. If I headed across the pond in the other direction to start a new life, I wonder what my Norwegian name would be. Uh, what do you what do you meat sacks think of Hoingi Boingi? Right? I could be Hoingi Boingi. <laughs> or maybe I could be Tinker Duker Fluke Sonnesberger Hinky. Uh, I could be Tiddly Winks. I feel like those are some pretty dope ass Norwegian names. Slalom, tell your mother to Tinker Do, Tinker Do Tiddly Winks, stop by to drop off some Lutefisk. I feel, thank you, Mr. Kasarnaburga Hinky Binky. And half of our Norwegian audience. That's it. Stop and will not be listening to Time Soak again. Uh, Bella showed up looking for some easy money. She had no interest in putting uh, up with any twig-based teasing in America. Her sister, Nella Larson, Nellie Larson, would later remark, my sister was insane on the subject of money. She would do anything to get it. Bella made it no secret she thought of dollar signs when she thought of marriage. Nellie observed, she never seemed to care for a man for his own self, only for the money or luxury he was able to give her. This was her murder motivation, greed, good old-fashioned greed. In March of 1884, Bella Peterson became Bella Sorensen when she found and married a Norwegian man named Mads Ditlev, Ditlev Anton Sorensen. They were married at the Evangelical Lutheran Bethania Church on Grand Avenue and Carpenter Street in Chicago. And yes, his name was Mads. Not an uncommon Scandinavian today, actually. I was looking him up. I found some young Danish soccer player, football player, by the same name, actually, of Mads Sorensen. Uh, and yet, Hoingi Boingi, for some reason, not a popular Scandinavian name. Huh. The only existing photograph of the lucky Mads Sorensen shows a powerfully built bull-necked fella with strong Nordic features, handlebar mustache, and a high balding dome. Sorensen was 29, five years older than Bella and was one of the 800 employees of the Mandel Brothers Department Store on State Madison Streets, where he worked as a night watchman. How different were those days when one department store could employ 800 people? Mads wasn't pulling in the kind of money Bella was hoping for, but he was pulling in, I can afford to heat our home with regular-ass wood money. So he was an acceptable starter husband. Years later, Bella would save her first husband, the father of her children, and by all accounts, a kind and loving man, that she stayed with him only because he provided her a nice house. And Bella and Mads started trying to have children right away. Bella loved kids most of the time. Later, she tended to kill them. So maybe she didn't love them exactly like you're supposed to. She had a great love for children, her sister Nellie would recall. Almost every Norwegian Sunday school child in Chicago knew her for her kindness. She appeared especially touched by the plight of orphaned and abandoned children. Attending the children's picnics at Humboldt Park, she would get out on the platform and offer to take care of children who needed a home. And and just speculation, if she did love children or if even back then she was just thinking about dollar signs. I think personally, initially, she did love kids and then she realized she could make money off of them by killing them and her greed won out over her early fondness of kids. Her, her eagerness to raise a child would lead to a, a bitter break with her sister, Nellie, 
This is crazy to me. Unable to conceive during the early years of her marriage with Mads, Bella directed much of her maternal feelings towards her four-year-old niece, Olga, the youngest of Nellie's five children. Nellie later explained, Olga was an awfully cute little girl, and my sister demanded to have her to rear. Though Olga was permitted to stay with her aunt, Bella, on one occasion for six weeks, Nellie, understandably, refused to let Mrs. Sorensen adopt my little daughter. From that day, my sister would hardly speak to me. How fucking weird is that? You want to take your sister's kid for your own? And my sister's like, no, it's my kid. You're just like, well, I won't be talking to you anymore then if you won't let me have in your baby. Uh, Mella might not have been murderous yet in the 1880s, but she was uh, for sure a, a little cray-cray. In 1891, Bella Sorensen finally gets a kid of her own. She took in an infant girl named Jenny, living close to the Sorensons at the time were the Olsons, a married couple who'd become close friends with Bella and Mads, as Anton Olson, the child's father, would later explain. When Jenny was eight months old, her mother was dying. Mrs. Sorensen begged the dying woman to bequeath the child to her. My wife put the baby in Bella's arms and called on her to swear that she would guard the little one as her own, rear and care for her. Bella swore that she would regard the pledge as sacred. My wife died soon afterward. After Bella took the child, I saw her frequently. She brought Jenny to me often and kept her well-dressed. The child was happy. Years later, after he'd remarried, Olson tried to regain custody of his daughter and Bella fought him in court and won, which would turn out later to be a real bummer for Jenny. Though Mads never brought home more than $15 a week in wages, equivalent to roughly 450 bucks today, he and Bella somehow managed to acquire enough money in 1894 to purchase a small candy store at Grand Avenue and Edward Street. And Bella would learn two things from her candy store venture. Uh, one, Making money selling candy was hard, and two, collecting money via insurance fraud was easy. Occupying the street-level floor of a two-story wood frame building, the store, as a newspaper photograph makes clear, sold tobacco, cigars, newspapers, magazines, stationery, some grocery staples, and a lot, and a lot, a lot of popular candies of the day. Despite its location in a busy commercial district, the shop failed to prosper, and less than a year after she and Mads bought the place, a fire broke out, and Bella probably started it. Bella would uh, be around an alarming number of fires in her life. She was either the unluckiest person in the world when it came to fire, or she set a shit ton of fires. At the time of this fire, no one was present except Bella and her foster daughter, Jenny, then a three-year-old toddler. The first known of the fire, reported the Chicago Tribune, was when Mrs. Sorensen, with her child, came running out onto the sidewalk, crying fire at the top of her voice. By the time the blaze was extinguished, the interior of the store had been completely destroyed. What? No, dang it. Bella was so relieved. I mean, outraged. Though Bella claimed that a small kerosene lamp had exploded, the insurance investigators sifting through the debris could find no such lamp. Despite suspicions of arson, the insurance company ultimately paid up. After getting some insurance money, the Sorensen sold the store, excuse me, to the brother of its original owner, and then Bella and Mads moved out to the blue-collar fringe of the well-to-do suburb of Austin, where they purchased a three-story bay-windowed house on Alma Street. Nice! Moving on up to the east side To a deluxe apartment in the sky Moving on up to the east side We finally got a piece of the The Jefferson's best sitcom theme song of all time has to at least be in the conversation. Anyway, Bella moves on up when she learns there's good money in torching up a place that you've insured. 
She'd soon learn there was uh, even better money in killing people when you were the beneficiary to their insurance policy. Between 1896-1898, the Sorensons became the parents of four more children. Carolyn, Myrtle, Axel, and Lucy. Axel, such a good Scandinavian name. I had a great uncle. Axel, Axel Berman. Whether these babies were born in rapid succession to Bella, then in her late 30s, or as uh, seems more probable, orphaned or unwanted infants that she took in, perhaps a, according to some accounts for monetary con- consideration, remains even today a matter of dispute. I, th- I think she, I don't think she had them herself. One fact is certain. Soon after their birth, two of them died. Carolyn at five months old, Axel at three months. At a time when the U.S. infant mortality rate was shockingly high, approximately 100 deaths per 1,000 live births, no one saw this as suspicious. And their deaths could have very well been natural deaths. But when Belle Gunnis is your mom, your odds of dying a natural death go down considerably. We learn later that she for sure had no problem killing her kids. One of these uh, initial babies died from uh, acute inflammation of the bowels. Another passed from hydrocephalus, commonly called water in the brain. Insurance policies paid out in the thousands for both of these kids' deaths. On the evening of Friday, October 1st, 1897, Mads, who had found work with Chicago and Northwestern Railroad, was bringing home wages of $12 a week. And then he just fell into what seemed to be a golden opportunity. That night, the Sorsons were visited at home by a gentleman named Angus Ralston, who presented himself as the agent and chief engineer for an enterprise known as the Yukon Mining and Trading Company. Ralston explained that Yukon Mining was a corporation of great financial resources that had been incorporated with capital stock of $3,500,000. They owned mines in New Mexico and had great and extensive interests in Alaska and the Klondike regions. The company was presently hiring miners willing to endure the rigors of a year-long stretch in the Alaskan wilderness for the chance to strike it rich. At Bella's urging, Mads quickly signed on, entering into a formal agreement with the company that was signed, sealed, and witnessed on October 27th. According to the deal's terms, Mads agreed to go to Alaska in the employee of the company and prospect for gold, locate same, and do any other kind of work that the manager in charge of the expedition required done for one year beginning April 1st, 1898. And I like that they put April 1st in there just because of the April Fool's Day, as you'll find out why I like that here in a second. In, in return, he would not only be paid the same wages as other men in the camps where the mines are located, but also receive one-fourth interest on all mines located by him, along with 2,800 shares of stock in the corporation. Since the Sorsen family would be without their breadwinner for a full year, the company also agreed to pay Bella, his wife, $35 each month while he is in their employ and to charge same to his account for salary. Bella, who as her sister observed, cared little for Mads as a person, happy to send him off for a year to prospect for gold. Blinded by the promise of dazzling wealth, she and Mads also agreed to invest a considerable sum of their own money to cover his supplies for one year. On the same day that Mads entered into his agreement with the company, he and Bella signed over a joint promissory note for $700, equivalent to over $20,000 today, putting up their deed to the Alma Street property as collateral security to get this deal. Does this sound too good to be true? Yeah, sure it does, because it was. Uh, Old Ralston was the late 19th century equivalent of a Nigerian email scammer. Dude ran his scam door to door, old school style. No email, no letter in the mail. Nope, he's gonna come to your house, sit in your living room, look you in the eye while he ruins your family's financial future. Take some of your money in exchange for wild riches. I have no use for scammers, but I do love that he scammed Bell Gunnis. And I love that he put April 1st in there. April fools, motherfuckers, ha, I'm keeping your money. What happened next is detailed in a lawsuit Bella and Mad subsequently launched against the Yukon Mining and Trading Company. 
In compliance with said contract, reads the documents, Mads made all preparations at great sacrifice and expense to himself to go to Alaska, presented himself to said corporation on or about the first day of April, 1898, and informed the officers of said corporation that he was then ready to fulfill his contract and would hold himself in readiness to go to Alaska. And then two months passed with no word from any representative from the company. Then he and Bella, suspicions aroused, contacted a lawyer who demanded the right to examine the books of said corporation, and that investigation confirmed the Sorsons' worst fears. Far from booming gold mine operation it purported to be, the Yukon Mining and Trading Company had absolutely zero financial resources. Yeah, just a big old scam. An investigation found that the corporation had not and has not had any interest of any value in any mines in New Mexico, Alaska, or anywhere else. Bella and Mads had been taken. However, they would win some of their money back in a lawsuit, and Bella got an unexpected criminal lesson out of the whole deal. And when it came to crime, she was a great student. She'd make a lot of money later off this lesson. She learned that, uh, you know, you just get somebody to give you a decent chunk of their change in, in hopes that you will give them a huge chunk of change later. That tends to play on people's greeds like it played on hers. And then you just don't give them that. Keep the decent chunk, knowing that if you can get enough other people to give you more decent chunks, pretty soon you have a huge chunk to keep for yourself. Uh, Bella would take the scam a lot further than Angus or Angus. Hard for someone to sue you and get some of their money back if they're dead and gone. On the evening of Tuesday, April 10th, 1900, uh, Bella in all likelihood ran another insurance scam. She wouldn't roll out her new murder scam for a few years yet. On the 10th, a fire, another fire, reportedly caused by defective heating, uh, defective heating apparatus, broke out in the Sorsons Alma Street home. Though firefighters arrived in time to save the building, Bella and Mad suffered the loss of roughly $650 worth of household goods. Fortunately, as the Chicago Tribune reported, all the property destroyed was insured. Ha! How convenient. And the couple received another hefty insurance settlement. Mmm, get that insurance money! Moving on up, stealing left and right. On June 13, 1900, Gunnis and her family were counted on the United States Census in Chicago. The census recorded her as the mother of four children, of whom only two were living, Myrtle, three, and Lucy, one. An adopted 10-year-old girl, uh, identified possibly as Morgan Couch, but apparently later known as Jenny Olson, was counted. So Jenny counted in the household as well. At the time of the April fire, Mads belonged to a mutual benefits association that provided him with a $2,000 life insurance policy set to expire on Monday, July 30th, 1900. He had decided to let that policy lapse and take out a new policy for $3,000 that would become operative the same day. I'm guessing Bella was the one who pushed for both policies. I'm guessing Paul's twig daughter pushed for all kinds of insurance. Those Norwegian kids should have called her Kindlin. She was obviously a fire starter. That very Monday afternoon, July 30th, Dr. J.C. Miller, a young physician who had once boarded with the Sorensons, received an urgent summons from Bella. Hurrying to the Alma Street address, he found Mads, fully clothed, lying dead atop his bed. And he came to the conclusion that Mads had been poisoned with strychnine. Weird. So weird that on the one day that both life insurance policies were active, literally the only day you could collect on both policies, Mads who was a totally healthy 46-year-old you know, guy the day before, suddenly totally dead, and that he seemed to have been poisoned. I think this is her first murder. She's already figured out how to run some arson insurance scams. And, you know, Bella's already been the beneficiary of some life insurance scams with the deaths of two of her children. She knows how to collect on insurance scams. I think she was money hungry, and when you became an obstacle to her getting more money, Maybe Mads didn't want to, you know, do some deal she wanted to do or, or push for a better job that, that she wanted him to push for. 
know, when you become an obstacle to more wealth, you died. And as time goes on, she just gets more and more bloodthirsty and greedy. I'm sure it got easier and easier for her to kill. But she almost never got a chance to become a serial killer. She, she came very close to getting caught for this first uh, known murder. I think it's no murder. After Dr. Miller's initial poisoning conclusion, another doctor, Charles E. Jones, the Sorensen's family physician, arrives and says he's been treating Mads for an enlarged heart. He concludes the death was caused by heart failure. Therefore, you know, there's no point in doing an autopsy. You know, the death isn't suspicious. Questioning Bella, the doctors learned that her husband, who was suffering from a bad cold, had come home from work that morning complaining of a fearful headache. Bella gave him a dose of quinine powder. Then uh, she went down to the kitchen to prepare dinner for the kids. When she came back upstairs, a short while later, to check on her husband, she found him dead. Thinking as he later explained uh, that the, 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 or as she later explained that the druggist had made a mistake and given her morphine instead of, uh, I think it's quinine. I forgot to look that one up. Dr. Miller asked to see the paper in which the powder had been wrapped and Bella replied that she had thrown that powder away. How convenient. She just throws away the powder. It probably killed her husband. With nothing but the symptoms as Bella described them, the, the two doctors conclude that Mars died of cerebral hemorrhage and Bella collected on both life insurance policies. She applied for the insurance money the day after her husband's funeral. Sorsen's relatives found the timing all too coincidental. They thought Gunnis poisoned Matt's. Surviving records suggest that an inquest was ordered by the family. Unclear, however, as to whether or not an investigation actually occurred. Uh, you know, they wanted uh, his body to be exhumed and checked for arsenic. Had Sorsen died a day earlier, one newspaper later explained, his wife would have been able to collect only on the first policy for two grand, uh, or if a day later, only on the second for 3000 Dying as he did, she collected on both the old and new policies, a total of five grand, which works out to be about, about 150 grand in today's money. And in other accounts, they say she walked away with 8500 between the two, which is over $200,000 today. Not a bad chunk of change. Ah, shit. Got rid of the husband. I'm free to find a guy who will make more money. Uh, on the morning of Thursday, August 2nd, 1900, Mads Ditliff Anton Sorsen laid to rest beside his two infant children at the Forest Home Cemetery. Quick word on strychnine. Sometimes pronounced as strychnine, but I hate the way that sounds. It seems to be more often pronounced strychnine. Strychnine is the poison Norman Bates killed his mother with in the classic Hitchcock horror film Psycho. Strychnine is an alkaloid, makes it an evil cousin of drugs like caffeine, nicotine, cocaine, all of these are nitrogen-rich, slightly basic compounds that plants pump into whichever parts of themselves they don't want to be eaten by bugs and critters. The poison comes from the strychnine tree, a.k.a. the venom orange tree, a deciduous tree native to India and Southeast Asia, and the poison is derived from seeds in the tree's little orange-colored apple-sized fruit. Alkaloids are extracted from ground-up strychnine seeds, a.k.a. strychnine nuts, are often called by boiling them with alcohol and acetic acid. Lactose is then added, and the result is known as strychnine extract. And well, you get the idea. The poison comes from the seeds, can be converted into a liquid form, also uh, made into a powder. And it was often sold in Bell's day to be used as rat poison. And you could just, you know, you could just pick it up at a variety of stores. You could mix it into a drink or some food, and no one would be the wiser until it was too late. And if someone did poison you with strychnine, you'd die in hours. You'd suddenly be afflicted with extreme soreness, stiffness in your muscles, especially those around the neck, jaw, and abdomen. And then you'd likely be afflicted with intense muscle spasms and convulsions. Strychnine acts on the nerves that control muscle contraction, mainly those in the spinal cord. And too much strychnine can affect the muscles used for breathing, which, you know, not good. Uh, those are pretty important muscles. They're almost as important as having cool-looking biceps. 
And then death by strychnine generally comes from brain damage, cardiac arrest, or respiratory failure. And God knows how many people died from strychnine poison in the days before modern emergency rooms and before modern forensics. Before we jump back into Bell's life, time for a quick sponsor. Today's Time Suck is brought to you once again by Albert Fish Sings the Classics. We just uncovered, this is very, very cool. We just uncovered a lost recording of Albert Fish and Bell Gunnis. Uh, after she disappeared, after this uh, later escape she'll do, she apparently met up with Fish and they, they recorded some duets from the 1920s. Really cool stuff. Uh, they sing really well together. Check out how they tweaked Irving Berlin's Blue Skies. Blue skies smiling at me. Nothing but blue skies. Now come on and pee. Stomp on my monkey. Stomp for so long. Sneaking some whipping. That's right if it's wrong. And then Belle would jump in. Never seen the sun shining so bright. And never saw someone I wouldn't poison when the money wasn't right. And blue skies and smiling at me, son. A fishy dingy singy. Let me take an insurance policy out on your life and then I'll stomp your stinking monkey until you're dead and gone. And it's real rare and experimental old-timey shit, you guys. Ten different songs. And if you order their album today, Bell beats Fish until he comes and goes away for good. You'll also get a free six-pack of Ed Kemper's Pet Sickles. Mother! And a free patent-pending limp thrust massage from none other than Andre Chikatilo. What's this big deal? I'm a sus now. It's a natural place for me to put the wrestle moves to good use. I use a soft shame cock as massage tool. It's perfect for working out kink in a hard-to-reach place. And I'm back. Oh, man, what a, what a great sponsor, though. Uh, refocusing on Bella now. Just needed, to, just needed to release a little weird pressure out of my thought bucket. Following the death of her husband, Bella paid a visit to a relative on a farm in Fergus Falls, Minnesota, home of friend, comedian, fellow podcaster, Chad Daniels, uh, the idea of resettling on a farmstead of her own seemed to have taken hold of her. I bet it did. The girl raised as the poor daughter of a poor worker on someone else's farm now wants to own the farm herself. Back in Chicago, according to some researchers, Bella placed a classified ad in the Tribune seeking a suitable property. The ad caught the eye of Peter Gunnis, the then current owner of an Indiana farm locally known as the Matty Altic Place, and he contacted Bella. Bella's soon-to-be home, a place that would come to be known as the Murder Farm, has an interesting backstory. In 1846, a man named John Walker built a home for his daughter, Harriet Holcomb. The Holcomb clan were supporters of the Confederacy, while the rest of Laporte were for the Union. Nearly two decades passed before the unpopular clan moved to New York, leaving the farm to change hands a dozen times until 1892, when a brothel keeper moved in. Matty Altick, a madam from Chicago, bought the property and transformed the farm into a popular, fully-staffed whorehouse. Many of her regular customers were from Chicago, made trips to Laporte, and their money helped to add a, a jetty, a boathouse, and a large carriage house to the property. Whorehouse to murder house. Not many Midwest farms have that kind of history. After Altic's death, the house changed hands four more times until Peter Gunnis got a hold of it. An, an agreement was struck, and in November 1901, after selling her Alma Street property, Bella Sorensen and her three kids, Jenny, Myrtle, and Lucy, moved to Laporte, Indiana. The people of her new community would know her by a slightly different name, though she continued to sign herself as Bella in private correspondence. She adopted the plainer, more typically American Bell in her dealings with her neighbors. And then Bell's last name would change to Gunnis a few months later as well. Finally, we've arrived at Bell Gunnis, the name of infamy. 
So who was Peter Gunnis? Bill actually met Peter Gunnis while she was still married to Mads. The couple, the couple had given Gunnis board in their home for a brief time while Peter worked in the stockyards. Surviving photos of Peter confirm one writer's description of the former boarder as a fine-looking blonde Viking of a man with clear blue eyes and a pointed yellow beard and mustache. Boarding people in your home in the days before hotels were everywhere. The OG Airbnb. Funny how that's come back around. You have an extra room in your house? Rent it out. Renting out in the days before criminal and sex offender registries and easy online background checks, though, that's so crazy to me. Especially if you had kids, like basically everyone did back then. I guess it was just a more trusting time. More trust. That made crime more fun back in the late 19th and early 20th centuries as well. Bell made a lot of money off people's misplaced trust. Peter was a fellow Norwegian, an immigrant from Oslo, who arrived in Minneapolis in 1885. He and his brother Gust moved to Chicago in 1893, just in time for the city's hosting of the World's Fair. It was around that time he rented a room from the Sorsons, and that was when the H.H. Holmes murder castle was going, by the way. After a brief visit back to Norway, Peter Gunnis returned to Minneapolis, where in June 1895, he married a young woman named Jenny Sophia Simpson. They lived in a house on Hennepin Street while Peter worked as an order man for a grocery house. Their first child, a child they named Swanhild, was born in 1897. Four years later, Jenny Gunnis died while giving birth to their second child, another girl, an all-too-common occurrence back then. Still one more thing that would play into Bell's criminal hands. People died of natural causes all the time. A lot of deaths in the family didn't arouse suspicion like it would now. Excuse me. During her visit to her cousin in Minnesota following Mad's death, the widow Sorensen made it her business to take a trip to Minneapolis, become reacquainted with the handsome and suddenly available former boarder of hers. The years had not been kind to Belle, according to those interviewed about her later. Hardly a beauty in many eyes to begin with, she had apparently aged into a coarse and mannish figure. It's one quote. Described in the particularly harsh words of one of her contemporaries as, God, this, this description kills me. Described as a, quote, fat, heavy-featured woman with a big head, covered with a mop of mud-colored hair, small eyes, huge hands and arms, and a gross body, (laughs) this is my favorite detail, supported by feet grotesquely small. Sweet Jesus. Could have just called her a swamp donkey, but on your way. A heavy-featured meat sack with huge hands and arms, and a gross body supported by freakish, tiny little baby feet. This, this unnamed contemporary clearly just fucking hated her. Yeah, she might not have been winning any beauty pageant ribbons. She didn't look like that description from the pictures I've seen because that description made me dig deeper on some Bell images. And again, I, I found an image when she was younger. Where I think she was actually super hot. Uh, and then with the image when she's older, yeah, you know, she gets a little thicker like most people do as they get older. <laughs> but she didn't look like that in the pictures I've seen. Just some old school body shaming. Uh, I don't know. Maybe the pics I found were far and away just the most flattering ones uh, of taken of Belle. Maybe in reality, she was a huge-handed, tiny-footed, beady-eyed, mud-mopped bridge troll. Regular woman or misshapen monster. She didn't seem to have any trouble attracting men, even one as handsome as Peter Gunnis. In 1901, Gunnis purchased a house on McClung Road. It has been reported that both the boat and carriage houses burned to the ground shortly after Belle acquired the property and insured it. Ha! Another weird fire coincidence. On April 1st, 1902, I love again that this was April 1st, Bell and Peter were married in the First Baptist Church of Laporte. Bell was now officially a farm owner, and she was about to pull a nasty April Fool's trick on, on old uh, old Peter. Man, she's got even more money now. Got a farm. 
Five days after the nuptials, Peter's seventh-month-old daughter dies. Maybe natural death, maybe poison. Every death around Bell is suspicious. Edema of the lungs, given as the official cause of death, her body shipped to Chicago, interred in the Forest Home Cemetery beside the remains of two other infants who died in Bell's care. She got a little more insurance money and one less baby to take care of. Uh, On December 16th, 1902, around 3 a.m., Peter himself met with a tragic accident. The murder of Peter Gunnis. Easily some of Bell's sloppiest work. Incredible that she was able to get away with this shit. Swan Nicholson and his family, the Gunnis' nearest neighbors, were startled awake by the sharp banging on their front door as though someone were striking it with an iron rod. Hurrying downstairs in their bedclothes, they find Bell's foster daughter, Jenny, standing on the porch, a stove poker clutched in her hand. Mama wants you to come up, says the 12-year-old. Papa's burned himself. When they arrive at the Gunnis farmhouse, a few minutes later, Swan and his young son, Albert, find Bell seated in the kitchen, so overwrought that she could barely speak coherently. Her husband, dressed in his long white nightshirt, sprawled face down in the parlor, lying on his nose and blood on the floor, as Nicholson later testified. Squatting by the body, Nicholson took hold of his arms to feel the pulse and tried to talk to him, but he would give me no answer. Albert ran all the way into town, roused local doctor, Bo Bowl. Bowl could could tell at once that Gunnis had been dead for quite some time. The body was already growing rigid. The back of his head bore an ugly wound, thickly caked with blood. His nose was broken, bent to one side. Medically speaking, his head and face were super fucked up. Bull's immediate impression was that Peter had been murdered. Bell, whose condition bordered on hysteria, was led back into the kitchen, seated in a chair. Bull did his best to find out what happened, though the story he managed to extract from Bell raised more questions than it answered. From what he could gather, her husband had gone into the kitchen to get his shoes which he kept near the stove to stay warm. As he stooped over, bent over to retrieve his shoes, put them on, a meat grinder tumbled off a shelf above his head, struck him in the back of his skull, and also overturned a bowl of hot brine that scalded his neck. Uh Uh-huh, sure that happened. (laughs) And then... And then this, and then this killed him. This, this crazy accident. And then despite, you know, getting like mashed in the face and breaking his nose, ended up with a fractured skull, a hole in the back of his head. He somehow assures her that he's all right and just goes to lay down to rest. And a few hours later, she finds him dead on the parlor floor because that, you know, because that meat grinder just kind of tumbled off and smashed his head. That's like finding somebody who has been obviously raped and sodomized and murdered via being stabbed and shot. And then, and then having the person who's accused of, Murder and raping them say like, oh, hey, hold on, hold on. I can't. Let me explain. Let me explain. It was the darndest thing. He walked into the kitchen, tripped over my leg. He kind of twirled around and, he, and wouldn't you believe it? He fell right on top of my hard dick. I was laying on the kitchen floor on my back, jerking off like that, as I am often prone to do. And wouldn't you know, my erect penis just, whoop, just went right into, into Peter's butthole, startled him. And he kind of he kind of popped back up and he grabbed the counter to pull himself up. And there was a whole bunch of knives on the counter that were drying there after I washed them earlier in the day. And that's that's why my fingerprints are all over him. Anywho, Peter ended up flipping the knives kind of up into the air and they just kind of twirl around. And then they just all came down like a bunch of lawn darts and they just stabbed him in several places uh, in his torso and neck. And that's when that's when he fell back down because of getting stabbed. And, and he, third time's a charm, fell right back on my on my hard dick. And then he kept trying to get up off of me. I was like, get off of me. And he kept trying to get, and then he would slip and fall back and his up and back and up and back. And that's how I ended up accidentally orgasming uh, into his colon, which is how my DNA got in there. Still trying to get up. Peter reached for the table. He'd laid a loaded rifle there earlier in the morning, thinking he might go hunting later. 
damned if that rifle didn't just kind of flip up into the air. And then he tried to catch it, accidentally pulls the trigger, shoots himself in the chest. The recoil, if I remember correctly, launched the rifle back up into the air, hits the ceiling, and it discharged, actually shoots him again, this time in the face. And then it falls back, and then I grab it, you know, so it doesn't hit me. And I, damned if I didn't also grab it by the trigger. And that's how he got shot in the head a second time. So <laughs> you really think it looks kind of like I raped and stabbed and shot him in a murdery way. Really, just a just an interesting series of uh, accidents. End scene. Uh, Bell said, yeah, that, that all this happened. Dr. Powell found this story highly suspect because it's fucking ludicrous. On the afternoon of December 16th, Dr. Bell, assisted by another local physician, Dr. Martin, conducts a post-mortem examination of Peter Gunness's body as detailed in his official report, there's no burns, no evidence of scalds or burns on the entire body. She just made up that detail. Nothing burned him. Uh, Bow wrote that Gonis' nose was lacerated and broken, showing evidence of sub- severe blows or the result of falling upon a blunt article such as the edge of a board. The most significant wound was a laceration through the scalp and external layer of skull about an inch long, situated just above and to the left of the, uh, of the uh, part of his head. It's, I should have looked out. Occipital, occipital protuberance. Upon removing the pericranium, you know that one, there showed a fracture and depression of the inner plate of the skull at a point corresponding to the external laceration. There was also marked intracranial hemorrhage. Bull concluded that death was due to shock and pressure caused by fracture and said hemorrhage. Yeah, he was bashed in the fucking head, clearly. And there's no way he talked to Bill after that bash. There's no way. That somebody would also let somebody go to go to sleep after that severe of a head wound. He didn't get like a little bump on his head. He has fucking head crushed in and part of it. And then she says like, ah, oh, yeah, he's got up and said he had a headache. Yeah, went to bed. Went to go lay down. Yeah, no, he, he, Bell bashed him in the head and murdered him. Everybody knew it, but she pulled an OJ, got away with it. An inquest was held on Thursday, December 18th, 1902 at the Gunnis Farmhouse in the room where Peter died. Bell, the primary witness, underwent a lengthy and at times heated interrogation by Dr. Bull while his clerk transcribed the exchange. Jenny Gunnis, six months shy of her 13th birthday, testified next. Her account of what happened on the night of her stepfather's death matched Bell's precisely, too precisely. Suspecting the girl was repeating what her mother had told her to say, Bull asked if the two of them had talked about how he got hurt. She shook her head vigorously, no, insisting we haven't talked at all. But then she admitted that, you know, when this accident occurred, she was asleep. So how could she have known anything? She was obviously told what to say. By the time Bull conducted his inquest, the community was swimming with rumors regarding foul play. One uh, local newspaper would report. Residents scoffed at Bell's explanation for her husband's death, as they should have. Peter Gunnis was killed with a meat grinder dropping on his head, sneered one farm wife, a very likely story. Peter's funeral service took place in the parlor of the Gunnis farmhouse on Friday, December 19th. Dr. Bull issued his findings on the same day that Peter Gunnis was buried in Patton Cemetery, saying, after having examined the body and heard the evidence, we find that the deceased came to his death by the accidental falling of the auger part of a sausage mill, falling from the heating shelf of a cook stove in his kitchen and striking him on the back of the head. The impact of said auger part of sausage mill causing fracture of skull and intracranial hemorrhaging resulting in death. And he must have been like riding that like fucking that fucking ass piece of shit because no one witnessed Peter's murder. And people at the time were very reluctant to hang a woman for her husband's murder if the woman not only wouldn't confess, but also made up a story about an accident. Right there, there, there was it was just kind of a, you know, it's her word. Bell benefited from the sexism of the day. I suspect if, if Bell had had died the way Peter did. And then Peter told the story Bell told, he would have been charged, convicted, and hanged. Her husband's death 
netted Gunnis another 3,000 or 4,000, depending on the source, equal to at least 120 grand in today's dollars. Wow! Just keeps working! Got more money from another murder. I'm moving on up. Uh, Local people refused to believe the death was accidental. Then the district coroner reviewed the case and unequivocally announced that Peter had been murdered. He convened a coroner's jury to look into the matter. Meanwhile, Jenny Olson, then 14, supposedly overheard confessing to a classmate, my mama killed my papa. She hit him with a meat cleaver and he died. Don't tell a soul. Jenny was brought before the coroner's jury, but denied having made that remark, guessing she was more than a little scared about what her mom might do to her if she testified. Gunnis, meanwhile, somehow eventually convinced the coroner that she was just innocent enough to avoid a trial. Maybe she bribed him. I mean, she had the money. Just a few months after Peter's death, Belle gave birth to a child she'd had with Peter, a boy she named Philip. Maybe she murdered this baby's dad while the child lived inside her. Seems a little extra evil. Or did she even have the baby? There's no mention of her being pregnant during any of these inquiries. Mysterious circumstances attended little Philip's arrival in May of 1903. People don't remember her being pregnant. Then the midwife who came to assist with the delivery of the supposedly uh, pregnant Belle Finds the baby was already born, bathed, and dressed by the time she gets there. Later that morning, after being notified by young Jenny Gunnis that her mother had gotten a little baby boy, a neighbor named Catherine Lapham went over to lend a hand. And to her amazement, Belle was just out of the cistern out back, washing clothes. Uh, Mrs. Lampson exclaimed, you shouldn't be up. Ah, said Belle in the old country. They never go to bed after they have a baby. Did Belle have this baby? Or did she steal it from another woman? And if so, what happened to that woman? Wouldn't be too much of a stretch to assume some serious foul play went on. Now back to the death of Peter Gunnis. Among those least persuaded by the official verdict on Peter's death was his brother, Gust. He suspected foul play was involved, not only in his brother's case, but in the sudden death of seventh, seven-month-old Jenny Gunnis, who died you know, less than a week after Peter's marriage to Belle. Gust was also concerned about the well-being of his surviving niece, five-year-old Swanhild, who remained in her stepmother's care, and he should be. He knew that prior to marriage, Peter had taken out a $2,500 life insurance policy naming Swanhild as the beneficiary. In the early months of 1903, the exact date is uncertain. Likely before Philip was brought into the home, Gus traveled to Laporte from his home in Minneapolis. He was reassured to find that though occasionally lonely for her family members back in Minneapolis, the young Swanhild appeared to be doing well. Less satisfied when he inquired about the $2,500 insurance money that the child was owed. Bell explained to Gus that before his brother's unfortunate demise, Peter had turned the insurance policy over to a mining company for the purchase of stock. And if the stock ever amounted to anything, Swanhild would be a rich girl. She'd be, she'd be sure to get that stock. Yeah, bullshit. When Gus asked to see the stock certificates, Bell couldn't find him, probably because they didn't exist. Instead, she made him a proposition that he stay with her and manage the farm. <laughs> I feel like the real deal here is Stick around long enough for me to be able to murder you so you'll stop asking all these stupid fucking questions. Gus declined, saying later, I didn't like her eyes. Gus stayed at the farm for several days with a growing sense of unease. I'm guessing he was sleeping with one eye open, guessing he was blocking his bedroom door with some shit so she couldn't sneak in at night, making sure to only eat the food she ate. And then one morning, less than a week after his arrival, Bell awakes to find that Gus has gone and that he's taken Swanhild with him back to Wisconsin. Swanhild would be the only child to survive living with Bell and only because somebody else kidnapped him. Yikes. When Peter, uh, with Peter gone, Bell assumed the farm work that was normally performed by a man at the time. She did her own planting and harvesting, pitched her own hay, milked her own cows. 
Wearing a sealskin cap, a man's leather coat, and a pair of her husband's old shoes, she would join the men at farm auctions in the area, tramping around in the mud, looking at farm machinery while the rest of the women stayed near, up near the stove. That is where a lot of the legends of her strength began. At these livestock sales, she supposedly would buy a 200-pound hog, then lift it up and toss it into her wagon as if it were just a sack of laundry. This feels like a tall tale to me. I'm not a small guy. Not sure how much I weigh right now. Maybe down somewhere around 205, 210. I used to lift weights a lot more. And at my strongest, when I was about 230, I could bench over 300 pounds, squat over 400, deadlift around 450. And it would have been tough for me then, at the strongest I've ever been in my life, to toss a 200-pound hog into a wagon. That's a lot of weight packed into an unruly-sized animal, right? There are a lot of stories like this floating around about Belle. While I feel like they had to have been exaggerated, she was, you know, apparently very strong, which makes her that much scarier to me. When the time came to butcher these animals, Belle handled the business herself. She would, you know, shoot them, bleed them, scald them, gut them, saving the head for head cheese. <laughs> with all the deaths surrounding Belle Gunness, the friendly relations Belle enjoyed with her neighbors when she first came to Laporte were gone. No one was a friend of hers. Neighbor Louisa Deslin's daughter, Dora, would later recall, you didn't want to have nothing to do with her. All the neighbors, not just us. Bell's break with the Deslins was provoked by a conflict over some stray cows. Bell's two heifer calves kept wandering into the Deslins' property to graze in their fields. Infuriated by this violation of small town codes, Dora's father warned Bell that unless she kept her cattle fenced in, he would demand payment for the use of his pasture. Next time he found the calves on his property, he made good on his threat, locking the cows in his barn, refusing to return them until Bell paid him a dollar. And then shortly after paying that dollar, she retaliated. Spotting some of Deslins' cows, Grazing along the road, she drove the cows into her yard. When William hurried over to retrieve them, like this dude saw this happen, she demanded a dollar for their return. <laughs> and he shouted, but you ran them in here off the road. And Bell coolly insisted that the cows were trespassing now and repeated her demand. Not clear if he paid it or, or how he got his cows back. What is clear is that the Bell in general just had no fucks to give, just for anyone. By the winter of 1904, Bell began looking for a new man and not just to help out with the work around the farm. Uh, in February of 1904, a 30-year-old Norwegian immigrant named Olaf Lindbo came upon a help-wanted ad in the Norwegian-language newspaper Scandinavian. The ad advertised a laborer position on Bell's murder farm in Laporte, Indiana. It wasn't described as a murder farm. It's not like Bell could be honest with her job offerings. That'd be great if she was. She put out some ad, Wanted, handsome young man with money to work as farm laborer and supply widow with young Dick for a few weeks to a few months before being murdered, then buried on said farm. Must bring cash. Must have either no family or family who doesn't ask too many questions. Amount of sex, negotiable. Bringing money and being murdered, not negotiable. Packing his worldly belongings, including his life savings of $600, Olaf headed for Indiana, where he was promptly hired by old Miss Hell's Bells. Within a short time after his arrival, neighbors began to notice that he and Bell seemed to enjoy an unusually close relationship. Apparently, even a local newspaper reported that it was generally accepted that he was her fiancé. Olaf would write back to his father in Norway just two months after coming to work for Mrs. Gunnis. Gunnis. In the letter, he told his father of the farm's exquisite location and mentioned he might be getting married soon. Old beady-eyed tiny feet, still got it. Old frog face, gross body, still pulling that young dick. Not long after Olaf sent the letter to his father, one of Bell's neighbors, Chris Christofferson, uh, received word from Bell that not the, not the singer's relation that I know of. She needed help because her hired hand, Olaf, had left in the middle of a major job. What? Olaf just randomly disappeared one night? That's so weird. Bell was in the field plowing corn when Christofferson arrived. 
When he asked about Olaf's disappearance, she explained that he had gone to St. Louis to see the World's Fair and was going to buy some land. When Olaf's father, after receiving no communication from his son for many months, wrote to ask about his whereabouts, Bell sent a letter back saying, from what she understood, he went west, took a homestead someplace. Uh-huh. Yeah, Olaf was dead and gone. During the second week of April 1905, just months after Olaf, and she got that money, right? Keeping keep Olaf's money. Hell yeah. Just making a little more cash. During the second week of April 1905, just months after Olaf's disappearance, that damn nosy neighbor, Chris Christopherson, at the gunner's place when a stranger arrives from town, introducing himself to Christopherson as Henry Gerholt. Gerholt. There we go. He explained that he'd come to work for Mrs. Gunnis. Everything about his new situation was to Gerholt's liking. He was optimistic about the future uh, of the farm. In a letter to his mother written a week after his arrival, he described the farm as one of the nicest places in the neighborhood with a handsome 13-room brick house surrounded by a grove of nice green trees. He also wrote, I'm being treated almost the same as one of the family. Chris Christopherson saw Gerholt repeatedly over the following weeks, oftentimes with Bell. And then one day in August of 1905, during harvest time, Bell appears at the Christopherson home again, asked if he could help, uh, if uh, they could help her with her oats. Gerholt, she explained, I just suddenly quit. Jesus, lady. Don't you have any other neighbors you can ask to help after you've obviously murdered an employee? Late in the summer of 1905, shortly after Henry Gerholt disappears, a classified ad begins appearing in various Norwegian language newspapers throughout the Midwest. Back when that was incredibly uh, actually a thing. Uh, it appeared in the Minneapolis uh, Tendendi, the Decorah Posten in Iowa, the Scandinavian. Translated into English, it read, Wanted, a woman who owns a beautifully located and valuable farm in first-class condition wants a good and reliable man as a partner in same. Some little cash is required and will be furnished first-class security. So basically, she's asking guys to invest in her farm, you know, as, as if they're buying stock in her farm for, you know, with, with a good chance that, you know, uh, they'll become partner, i.e. They'll, they'll get married and own half the farm. Basically, Belle was prowling the tinder of her day. Many a dude swiped right and were led to their deaths. The lady who was once scammed by that fake gold mine employee had come up with a killer similar scam of her own. No one knows how many replies this ad received, but Bell's postman, DJ Hunter, later reported that she typically received from one to four letters every morning, sometimes as many as eight or ten a day. Fuck. Business booming. How many dudes did she kill? Among the first to respond was a middle-aged Norwegian immigrant man named George Berry, who left his home in Tuscola, Illinois, with $1,500 in cash, roughly $40,000 in today's money, after informing acquaintances that he was moving to Laporte for a job and possible marriage. George Berry. What kind of Norwegian name is that? He really he really Americanized the shit out of that one. I wonder what his, what his original name was. Probably something exotic and cool. You know, Thor Flingleflugel. Maybe Marge Swingy Hooten Warble. Now he's all George Berry. Howdy doody. My name's George Berry. Would you care for some supper? You could have some kiot baller, perhaps. Do you like music? Let me grab my Hardinger, my Hardinger filler, fiddle, and play you some ditties. Uh, the the Hardinger fiddle, by the way, uh, used in traditional Scandinavian folk music. It's got an interesting sound. Uh, if you want to torture somebody musically, not a bad choice to go with the, the Hardinger filler. Actually, it has kind of an air banjo feel to it, uh, which brings me. To our next sponsor, the A-Hole Air Banjo Academy, not now offering Air Hardinger Lessons, the very first professional and totally legit music academy to do so. Now, here's a sample of just for comparison. 
of how a quote-unquote real Hardinger sounds. I mean, I mean, pretty beautiful, right? Kind of pleasant. Now, here's another sample of a, of another uh, real Hardinger. Sound pretty good, right? Well, guess what? That was me. <laughs> that was me. If you're just listening, that wasn't. I, I didn't push a button. I know you're. I know your fucking mind's blown right now. You're like that sounded exactly like this. It's fucking. It's the same. How did I do that? A hole Air Banjo Academy. Okay. Oh man, for the one time price of only seven thousand dollars for a five to ten minute lesson, you too can become that proficient at the Air Hardinger. A-hole Air Banjo Academy. Just because you're not normally an a-hole doesn't mean you can't at least sound like one. Uh, Kidding. Today's time is actually brought to you by Harry's. A lot of guys buy disposable razors when they travel because they want to save a few bucks. And apparently they also confuse their face with an old piece of driftwood. They feel like practicing some whittling on with a dull knife. Well, don't do that. Respect your face skin. This summer, you don't have to sacrifice quality for price. Join the 10 million other meat sacks who tried Harry's. Claim your special offer by going to harrys.com slash timesuck. Harry's delivers high-quality, travel-friendly shave supplies at the great low price of just $2 per blade. To keep prices low, they cut out the middleman by purchasing a world-class blade factory in Germany. And I've been personally rubbing my face down with that German steel the last few months, and it feels good. Haven't cut myself one time or felt stubble after I was done one time, after I shaved my, my super hairy cheekbones or my super hairy neck. And that's, and that's kind of the goal. Not get cut, not feel stubble. Super easy to switch out for a new blade with a trusty Harry's handle as well. Takes about one second, two seconds if I use my left hand. This summer, refresh your wallet and your face with a Harry's trial set. It comes with a weighted ergonomic handle for an easy grip, five-blade razor with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade for a close shave, rich lathering shave gel that will leave you smelling great, and a travel blade cover to keep your razor dry and easy on the go and not have you cut your fingertips when you reach in to your travel bag. Time suckers can redeem their trial set at harrys.com slash timesuck. Make sure that you go to harrys.com slash timesuck to redeem your offer. Let them know I sent you so you can support this show. We keep getting sponsors. Link right in the episode description for convenience. Now back to old-timey dudes disappearing on an Indiana farm. A subscriber to the Decora Poston. By the way, I cannot get that melody out of my head. I've tortured myself. This is all I hear is this kind of music for the whole rest of the show. <laughs> ah, I deserve it. A subscriber to the Decora Poston, Christian Hilgevin of Dover, Wisconsin, sells his farm for two grand in mid-1905, bids for a farewell to his friends after arranging to have the paper forwarded to his new address in Laporte, informing his boss he's going to marry a rich widow Emil Tell, a Swedish bachelor from Osage, Kansas, quits his job at the Howard Macy Furniture Company, travels to Laporte with $2,000 in his pocket. They're never seen again. Oh, shit! December of 1905, John Moe, 40-year-old bachelor from Elbow Lake, Minnesota, and a Scandinavian or Scandinavian subscriber, visits his local bank to cash $1,000 in checks, explaining to the teller that he was going to Laporte, Indiana, and he would use the money. And dudes just kept disappearing. 
Uh, I wonder if she ever had to kill them quicker than she wanted to just to stay on schedule for killing more dudes in the future. Another Gunnis suitor, George Anderson from Tarkio, Missouri, who, like Peter Gunnis and John Moe, immigrant from Norway. During a dinner with Anderson, Bell raised the issue of mortgage, of her mortgage. Anderson agreed that he would pay this off if they decided to wed. And then late that night, this is creepy, Anderson awakes to see Bell standing above him, just watching him sleep, holding a candle in her hand with a strange, sinister expression on her face, looking not at all like a complete fucking murderous psychopath. Without uttering a word, she runs from the room, and then Anderson himself flees from the house, as he should, soon taking a train to Missouri. What the hell was she doing? Thinking about how fun it would be to poison him, you know, in a few weeks? Thinking about maybe coming back into his room a little later to bash his skull in? She reminds me of Annie Wilkes, that Kathy Bates character in Misery. The suitors keep coming, but none except for Anderson ever leave the Gunnis Farm. By, the, by this time, she's begun ordering huge trunks to be de- uh, delivered to her home. It's never made totally 100% clear exactly what she was doing with these trunks, but it seems as if she was storing the men's belongings in them after she killed them. I don't know, maybe another way she thought she could make money down the road, maybe sell their belongings, or maybe like a lot of serial killers, a way to keep trophies of her victims. You know, maybe she would, maybe she wanted a whiff of a mill teller, Christian Hilkevin, maybe sniff their long johns later when she wanted to mentally and emotionally revisit their murders. A delivery driver named Claude Stur- Clyde Sturgis delivered many such trunks to her from Laporte and later remarked how the heavyset woman would lift these enormous trunks like boxes of marshmallows, tossing them onto her, quote, wide shoulders and carrying them into her house. Maybe she really was freakishly strong. She's some sort of fucking Highlander. There can be only one. Just taking the power of each person that she kills, getting stronger as she goes into middle age like some kind of Pulp Fiction monster. Her strength descriptions cracked me the hell up. She was apparently the mountain from Game of Thrones. Uh, she kept the shutters of her house closed day and night like a person constantly killing their house guests is apt to do. There would later be tales of farmers traveling past the Gunners dwelling at night, seeing her digging in the hog pen under the moonlight like a creepy ghoul. One of Bell's farmhands, Emil Greening, who was described as a square-cut, common-sensical, and happy 19-year-old, would later give testimony that, quote, Mrs. Gunnis received men visitors all the time. A different man came nearly every week to stay at the house. She introduced them as cousins from Kansas, South Dakota, Wisconsin, and Chicago. Most of the men that came brought trunks with them. Mrs. Gunnis kept the cousins with her all the time in the parlor and her bedroom. She was always careful to make the children stay away from her cousins. Uh Uh-huh. Well, that's good that she kept the kids away from these guys, at least, you know. No use having these uh, kids get attached to dead men walking. Emil Greening also said that he nor, the, uh, nor anyone on the farm had ever seen any of them leave. And strangely, every one of them left their trunk behind. Eventually, Groening recalled there were about 15, or Greening uh, recalled, there were eventually about 15 trunks, and one room was packed full of all kinds of men's clothing. Mrs. Gunnis said that the cousins had left their clothes, and she wasn't certain they'd be back for them. More on Greening in a bit. In summer of 1906, during a lull between visits from her many male cousins, Bell hired a local man, Asterix. I use an asterisk with the word man because this male creature was a Polish immigrant named William Brogiski. Hired him to dig a couple holes in the muck of her fenced off hog pen. Grave digging. Did you know that grave digging is still one of the top three, uh, like one of the best jobs in Poland today? It's one of the most important professions a Polish mother can hope to have her son acquire. Uh, the three are grave digger birthday clown, and accordion player. Those are some real Polish facts I just made up. You can check them yourself if you don't believe me, if you can ever figure out how to hack inside my head and Google my noodle. Anywho, anywho, Belle was very exact about the dimensions of these holes that she had the ghoul Brogiski dig. Six feet long, three feet wide, and four feet deep. They are to be rubbish pits, 
Bell explained. Very subtle. Just some rubbish holes dug to the exact specifications of human graves. The following week, Brogoski returns to the farm to do something else. While he's there, he notices that the holes are still empty. As he later testifies, he never saw what went into the bottom of these pits, nor when they were filled. While many a stranger met their death at the Bell Gunnis murder farm, the children under Bell Gunnis' care were in just as much danger. By the fall of 1906, Bell's longtime foster daughter, Jenny, the girl that she had raised since she was an infant, the girl that had blossomed into a very attractive 16-year-old and had several male admirers now, one of them being that young farmhand, Emil Greening. Well, uh, she wants to, uh, to, to, to leave home. Sometime in the winter of 1906, Jenny informs Emil that her mother had decided to send her to college in California and arranged for one of the professors to come to LaPorte and escort, escort her to the school. Shortly before Christmas, Greening heard that the professor from California had arrived. Nobody ever saw this guy. Early the next morning, Emil was sent out on an errand. When he returned, he asked to see Jenny so he could say goodbye to her, but Jenny was gone. Mrs. Gunnis told me that Jenny had left the same morning, but no one saw her leave and no one about the place ever saw the professor. I think we all know what happened to Jenny. And her murder is the most fucked up of all of Belle Gunnis' murders to me. This is her daughter, a girl she took as an infant that she begged to, to take care of from the dying mother, raised to the age of 16, and then she kills her. Why? While nothing was ever conclusively proven as far as motive, I have to think like all of Bell's murders, at least all the murders in America, it just came down to money. To Bell, everyone had a price, even her children. I'm guessing if Jenny were to leave the house, Bell would no longer, you know, be her life insurance beneficiary. The clock was ticking on her ability to cash in on her own daughter's life, so she just killed her. Who cares that they spent all that time together? Who cares about all the warm moments? Who cares that she raised her? What a narcissistic fucking sociopath. And if that's true, did she always know that someday she would kill Jenny? Did she raise her? Kind of like you're just raising a, a cow or, or a pig for slaughter. Uh, I mean, I can just picture the two of them sitting around the dinner table, Jenny dreaming of doing this or that when she made it to California. Oh, mama, wouldn't it be great? You can come and visit. You can see the Pacific. Oh, what do you think life's going to be like out there? And Belle's just smiling and nodding, knowing that she's going to be dead in a couple of days. Or maybe Jenny knew Belle was a killer. And, and, you know, she'd been worried about her adoptive mother killing her for quite some time, maybe for years. And now she hopes she's finally just going to escape the murder farm. Maybe Belle just thought she knew too much, much and uh, had to get rid of her. I don't know. A lot of different scenario possibilities. They all share one common denominator that Belle Gunnis was a monster. With Jenny gone, life on the Gunnis farm lost whatever charm, charm it had for a meal. And in June 1907, six months after her abrupt departure, he quits his job and heads west. Dude was lucky to make it out of there alive. One month later, he was replaced by Ray Lamphere. Ray would become a key player in the Bell Gunnis murder farm. Uh, he'd become an evil henchman. Surprised his name wasn't Igor. Surprised he didn't have a hunchback. Other than the hunchback, when you pull up an old mugshot of this dude, he absolutely has an evil henchman look. Dead-eyed, kind of dumb looking, creepy vibe for sure. He also looks a lot more like me than I care for. I could absolutely play this guy, looks-wise, <laughs> if there was a movie. Eventually, Ray would help run the farm for Bell as, as well as you know move and bury dead bodies. Accounts of how he came to be hired by Bell are not totally clear. Several chroniclers claim that having had her eyes on him for a while, she stopped him on the street one day, proposed that he come live on the farm and work for her. Other researchers say that as a member of the local carpenters union, he heard about some work that needed to be done at the Gunnis farm from a fellow carpenter, met up with Bell for an interview in Laporte. She hired him on the spot. Whatever the case, it is certain that by July 1907, 37-year-old Lamphere was living at the Bell uh, Gunnis farm and working for 47-year-old Bell. Lamphere's room would be on the second floor of the farmhouse in Emil Greening's former residence, 
and Belle supposedly stopped by frequently in her early days of working with Ray for some late-night sexual escapades. This would have been typical Belle behavior. Other of her employees had become uh, her bedmates. One of them, Peter Colson, who worked on her farm for two years, would later describe in great detail how she would come home to his room at night and make love to him with sweet words and caresses, saying she purred like a cat. This Colson testified this. Testified she was soft and gentle in her ways. I never saw such a woman. Belle Gunnis, such a complex, complicated meat sack. wonder how many dudes she gently caressed and purred before poisoning them for insurance money. I wonder if it made her horny to fuck a guy that she knew she was going to kill pretty soon. I also have a hard time picturing her be seductive. Mostly because I just, uh, I keep I keep imagining her having like a cartoonish, exaggerated Scandinavian accent, right? Which is not sexy to me. And I know it's just probably only exists in my head. Just, hoingy boingy, you'd be looking so hot and so handsome this evening. Hoingy boingy, take your dingy thingy, putting it mama bellsies, warmsy holesy. Pushing and pulling, making the mama bellsies, kitties purring. Is your wein a clean hoingy boingy? Oofta, 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 hoingy boingy, oofta with the dingy thingy. Oh, yeah, yeah, oofta, yeah, dingy, oofta, da, mm, yeah, hoingy boingy. <laughs> that wasn't fun for you. It was pretty fun for me. <laughs> imagine, imagine having sex somebody with that if they really. Like when they got close to orgasm, they actually made. For Ray Lanvier, working for Bell was a dream come true. He'd later be described as a shiftless loafer and bum by a local newspaper. Now he was the man of the farm. He was Bell's lover, body hiding sidekick. And then Andrew uh, Heglian showed up and took a shit all over Lanfear's henchman's paradise. Heglian's tale shows just how much Bell enjoyed the game of luring men to their murder farm deaths. Actually, it's Heligalian. Heligalian, I think that's how you say his fucking crazy name. Uh, she didn't need any more money. She was in all very, she was in all likelihood, excuse me, quite rich by 1907. In addition to all of her very profitable scams, she also was running a, a working farm that was also profitable. She wasn't in any danger of becoming Paul's twig daughter once more. By 1907, it seemed like, you know, she was killing at least partly just for the thrill. How many men could she trick? Uh, she worked hard to trick Heligalian. Beginning in the summer of 1906, even while other respondents to her ad were still arriving regularly at her farm, Bell embarked on a correspondence with Andrew uh, Heleg... God damn it, his fucking name. I'm just calling him Andrew. You know, Andrew fucked up stupid last name. Andrew was a 49-year-old wheat farmer from South Dakota who had seen her advertisement in the Minneapolis Tendende. And over the course of the next 18 months, she'd send dozens of letters to him, according to the most reliable sources, between 75 and 80. She put some work into luring Andrew. Unlike most of her earlier victims, Andrew would no easy prey. He was a burly, thick-necked Norwegian who spent 10 years in the Minnesota Correctional Facility for robbing the village post office in Red Wing, Minnesota, then burning down the building in an attempt to destroy evidence. He's a bad boy. Who doesn't like a bad boy? He'd make a nice little conquest. Addressing him as Dear Sir and signing herself as Mrs. P.S. Gunnis, Bell wrote back to Andrew on August 8th, 1906, describing herself as the owner of a beautiful home right in the midst of where the rich people have their fine summer homes. All kinds of fruit trees abound here and good new houses with all improvements and fine boulevard roads. She claimed to have 74 acres of land, which was 50% more than the truth, with an estimated value of 12000 to 14000 roughly equivalent to 400000 today. 
to see if he was a worthy candidate for her attention, she closed by asking him to tell me a little further respect in yourself and how much cash do you intend to invest? Getting right to the point. Show me the money or beat it. Mama's got crates to buy, holes to dig. Dear friend, the letter began, you impressed me with being a good man, with a strong and honest character, a real genuine Norwegian in every respect. It is difficult to find such a man and not every woman appreciates. There are plenty of these American dudes around here, but I would not even look at them, no matter how often they asked me. Oh, she's, she's really playing this letter well. And, and at first I thought uh, the dude quote was bullshit. I was like, who says dude? Back in 1906, 07, 08, like that era? Well, a- apparently uh, a lot of people. Dude was first used in the late 1800s as a term of mockery for young men who were overly concerned with keeping up with the latest fashion trends. Later, by the dawn of the 20th century, also used to describe clueless city folk who, who, who wanted to, you know, be a little more country and be, be able to do some, some farm and hunting type stuff. Bell knew how to stroke a guy's ego. Just get out here, Andrew. I'm sick of all these little girly men dudes. Couldn't butcher a hog or lift a crate full of clothes or dead man's body if their weak little lives depended on it. I need a real man. True enough Norwegian berserker like you. Sure, these little dudes want to get mama's honeypot. But I ain't giving it up for that. They don't get to hear the sweet oof da oof da oof da put your dingy thing in mama's holesy. Bell sketched an enticing portrait of the blissful domestic life the two could share, writing, we shall be so happy once you get here. Then I will make a cream pudding. I bet you will. And many other good things. How lonesome it must seem for you to be up there all alone. But you must hurry and come to me as soon as you can. You have been there long enough and worked hard for many a day, and now you must take it easier for the rest of your days. Oh, she's just laying it on so thick. Another letter, even more loving. To the dearest friend in the world. No woman in the world is happier than I am. I know that you are now to come to me and be my own. I can tell from your letters that you are the man I want. It does not take one long to tell when to like a person. And you I like better than anyone in the world. I know. Think how we will enjoy each other's company. Wink, wink. Pain and hole. You, the sweetest man in the whole world. We will be all alone with each other. Can you conceive of anything nicer? I think of you constantly. When I hear your name mentioned, and this is when one of the dear children speaks of you, or I hear myself humming it with the words of an old love song. Maybe maybe accompanied by this. Old Norwegian love song. That's nice. I hear myself humming it with the words. It's music to my ears. My heart beats. It will rapture for you. My Andrew, I love you. Come prepared to stay forever. Adorable. In a letter Bell received on October 27th, uh, Andrew mentioned that he'd been ill. You do not know how badly it makes me feel that you've been sick and all alone. She replies the same day, make yourself some good hot punch and put on some good warm underclothes and keep good and warm all the time. Health is the best thing you can have, my dear friend. How fucked up is that line in particular? Telling someone how important health is when the only reason you are writing them is because you're trying to kill them and take their money. And meanwhile, while she's writing these letters, there's a, there's a good chance some of these letters were written on the same day she killed other dudes. It was important, she repeated, that no one else be privy to their, their travel plans, delivering her advice with a flirtatious wink. Come alone. Do not take anyone from up there with you before we become a little acquainted. Wink! Oofta, oofta, oofta! Do you think that we would be best if we were... Oh, no, she goes, don't you think it would be best if we were alone, especially at the beginning? Wink! In early December 1906, Bell receives word from Andrew that he would be unable to make the move to Laporte as soon as he had hoped. 
My dearest friend, she writes back on the 14th, you do not know how downhearted I became when I read that you could not come home for Christmas and that you decided to remain up there all winter. Who will eat this Norwegian codfish, cream pudding, etc., and enjoy, quote, all the pleasures I have planned? Shortly after the new year, Andrew receives word from Norway that his mother has died. On January 12th, 1907, Bell sends a consoling letter urging him to take comfort from the knowledge that his mother has gone to her reward, that the Lord has called her home. I doubt she was very religious. Though Andrew had evidently given Bell good reason to believe he would finally be joining her in the summer of 1907, he postpones his departure yet again, and she gets frustrated. Now it is already the 25th of September, and last year at this time, I waited for you, and yet you haven't come to me. I know you are a man I can trust, and therefore I have waited so faithful. But it is so tiresome and lonely to wait so much longer, and the fall is here again, and I have the whole year managed the best I could without steady help because I've waited for you from one time to another, as you have promised and promised, and it seems as if you will never get your belongings in order up here. And then she writes after, you know, maybe realizing that was just a little bit too much. She goes, JK, I'll suck the skin off your cock twice a day if you could just make it to my murder farm. Wink, oofta! Of course, she didn't write that. She was a classy serial killer. Now, while she waited for Andrew, she kept herself busy killing other dudes. Throughout, the ni- uh, throughout 1907, Gunnis inserted the following advertisement in the matrimonial column of the Chicago Daily Paper and those in other large Midwestern cities. Personal, comely widow who owns large farm in one of the finest districts in LaPorte County, Indiana, desires to make the acquaintance of a gentleman equally well provided with view of joining fortunes. No replies by letter considered unless sender is willing to follow answer with personal visit. Triflers need not to put. Don't be fucking trifling. She doesn't need your trifling ass. She needs money. These advertisements worked in the past. They continue to work. Ole B. Budsberg, an elderly widower from Iowa, Wisconsin, appears next, last seen alive at the Laporte Savings Bank on April 6, 1907, when he mortgaged his Wisconsin land, signed over a deed, and obtained several thousand dollars in cash. Budsberg's sons, Oscar and Matthew, had no idea their father had gone off to Gunnis. When they finally discovered his destination, they wrote to her, and she promptly responded, saying she never saw him. Several other middle-aged men appeared and disappeared after bringing their money to the Gunnis farm throughout 1907. December 2nd, Bell wrote to uh, Andrew again, Dear one, make all haste, I beg of you. I am so anxious about you. My only and very best friend in all things. I wait every day to hear that you are coming and be sure to arrange all matters so that you will not have to go back home anymore. Finally, all the letters of manipulation pay off. In early January 1908, Andrew finally arrives in Laporte, which makes Bell Gunnis very happy and henchman Ray Lamphere very sad. Ray had happily settled into the role of, you know, Bell's lover, carpenter, farmhand, henchman. Then on Friday, January 3rd, a burly stranger in a shaggy fur coat that hung down below his knee shows up. And a few hours later, Belle tells Ray that she's turning over his bedroom to her guest. Ray, she said, could, quote, go sleep in the barn. Heartless. You're a cold bastard if you take on a new lover. Give that lover your old lover's room, an old lover who lived and worked with you, who you then tell, just sleep in the barn. And you're either in a real desperate financial situation or you're a fool or both if you don't have the self-respect to leave in that situation. Ray doesn't leave. He goes out and sleeps in the barn. I'm guessing at night he could hear Bell fucking Johnny Newdick in his old bed. Ah! Uh, Ray would later say, we got along all right before that and she used to come to my room at night, but after he came, she had no use for me. Frank J. Pittner, a cashier at the First National Bank of Laporte, was at his usual place 
behind the teller's cage on Monday morning, January 6th, 1908. And when Bell Gunnis comes in with a broad-shouldered man wearing a gray fur coat that reached to his shins. Andrew presented three certificates of deposit from the First National Bank of Aberdeen, South Dakota, announced that he wished to redeem them for their full value when Pittner explained that he would have to send them to the issuing bank for collection. Mrs. Gunnis asked how long that would take. Four or five days, Pittner estimated. Though Andrew accepted the delay without complaint, Bell couldn't conceal her annoyance saying, uh, oh, one historian writes, she argued and argued, but no cash was forthcoming and at last they went away moneyless. Andrew's only been town for three days. Bell's chomping at the bit to get her huge meat paws on that cash. The draft for the full amount arrived at the Laporte Bank January 11th. Three more days elapsed before Mrs. Gunnis and Andrew show up again uh, when Mr. Pittner lightly remarked that they seemed in less of a hurry for the money now. He was told that Andrew had been sick for the past couple days. Uh-oh. Bell's getting a little ahead of herself now. Not supposed to kill him until after you get the money. She almost messed up. Given the amount... $2,839, nearly $75,000 in today's dollars. <laughs> Pittner suggested that he write a cashier's check. Andrew seemed willing, but Mrs. Gunnis insisted that she that he take the entire sum in cash. Pittner counted out the money, half in gold coins, half in paper currency. He asked Andrew what he meant to do with it all, and Bell snapped, mind your own business. And then she took the, not looking like he was doing too well, Andrew, out by the arm, kind of helped him out of the bank. And then he was never seen it from again, or never seen again. Later that day, uh, Ray Lamphere thought to have helped dispose of Andrew's dead body. Big fish, 75 grand in the murder piggy bank. Big, tough Norwegian disappearing on the farm. She can buy so many more murder ads now. Andrew's brother, uh, Asel, was told nothing of Andrew's plans except that he would be back home in a week, surely. And when 10 days passed with no sign of his brother, he grew concerned, thinking that Andrew might have gone to see a family friend named Minnie Khan in Minneapolis. Asel sent a letter and then Minnie confirmed that Andrew paid her a visit, stayed only about an hour, and uh, I'm surprised to hear that Andrew is not home, she wrote. John Holth, the farmhand Andrew had hired to look after his livestock, also begun had begun to wonder about his employees, employers, excuse me, absence. Looking around Andrew's cabin for a clue to his whereabouts, he came upon dozens of letters, which he promptly turned over to Ozzel. All were signed, Bella Gunnis. A few weeks later, maybe still butthurt over her romance with the dude she just killed, Ray Lamphere gets into a big fight with Bell and either quits or is fired on February 3rd, 1908. He would later say he was still deeply in love with Gunnis, but had become jealous of the many men who kept arriving to court his employer. So abrupt was Ray's departure from the farm that he left his clothes and carpenter's tools behind. Less than a week later, Bell hired a replacement, Joseph Maxson, who took up residence in the second floor bedroom reserved for Bell's favored hired hands. Now, you might be expecting to hear that Ray himself had been murdered, but he was not. He did consult a local attorney over some missing wages and was advised to take Bell to court. Bell wasn't about to let Roy or Ray come after her money. This professional conniver got ahead of anything Ray, Ray might try to do by heading to the Laporte courthouse herself and declaring that her former employee was not in his right mind and was a menace to the public. She somehow convinced local authorities to hold a sanity, sanity hearing. Lamphere was pronounced sane and released, but he must have been a little pissed that she'd done that to him. Gunnis complained to the sheriff a few days later that Lamphere had visited her farm and argued with her, and she laid that he, or she said that he posed a threat to her family, and she then had Lamphere arrested for trespassing. Now, we're going to find out a little while later. I think this was all very carefully uh, contrived. She is building a very specific narrative about Lamphere that will come back to help her greatly when she, uh, makes her great escape a while later. 
Yeah, and Belle kind of, uh, she didn't fuck around. What a nightmare. At this point, Ray should have waved the white flag and just left town. Uh, tried on March 13th, 1908, before Justice of the Peace, S.E. Grover, Lamphere, with no legal representation, pleads guilty to trespassing, is fined $1 plus court costs. While this is going on, Andrew's brother, Ozel, still searching for an answer to the uh, disappearance of his brother, armed with Bella Gunnis as a lead, he writes to the Laporte postmaster to confirm that Mrs. Gunnis is a resident of the city. Then he wrote to Bell. She responded on March 27th, you wish to know where your brother keeps himself? Well, this is just what I would like to know, but it seems impossible for me to give a definite answer. Bell claimed that after arriving in Chicago, Andrew sent her a letter saying that he was to look for his brother the next day, and he said, I shouldn't write again until I heard from him. Since then, I have neither heard or seen anything. Now, this is all I can say to you about the matter. I have waited every day to hear something of him. Just one day later, Bell files an affidavit alleging that Ray Lamphere is insane on March 28th. Oh, man, Ray won't leave her alone, apparently, according to her. So she's going to keep making people think he's insane. Again, but he's just, uh, he's building, she's building all this up, this case against him. She can't get him declared insane uh, the second time either. She does have him arrested again for trespassing in early April. His trial is set for the 15th. To represent him at his second trial, Lamphere retains the services of local attorney Wit Warden, who requested, no, not Wit, Wirt, excuse me, Wirt Warden, who requested a change of venue to the nearby town of Stillwell. How do you like a name like that, by the way? Wirt. Childhood must have been fun. Wirt the squirt. What you got on your shirt, Wirt? Why aren't you wearing a skirt, Wirt? Wirt warden, squirt burden. Uh, the proceedings took place as scheduled on Wednesday, April 15th. Lamphere found guilty again. Ordered to pay a fine of $5 now, plus court costs. Total of just under 20 bucks. The next week, Bell has Ray arrested for trespassing for a third time. Uh, Bell would soon receive another letter from an anxious Ozzel. Feed him some more bullshit on April 24th. Oswald, not satisfied, decides to come look for his brother himself on April 27th. The Gunness Girls teacher at the Quaker school, Ms. Carrie Garwood, remembers a disturbing story. Uh, she recounted on the morning, or she would later remember this disturbing story. On April 27th, she says, I noticed the two little girls of Ms. Gunness came into the schoolroom crying. Their cheeks were swollen from weeping. They seemed in great distress. I called Myrtle to me and asked if she was in trouble. She replied that she and her sister had been given a terrible beating by their mother that morning. It was the first time I'd ever seen the children behaving so, and I was surprised. I pursued the questioning, and Myrtle told me that she and her sister had started in play toward the cellar of the Gunnis house. Mrs. Gunnis rushed after them before they reached the bottom of the stairway and dragging them back had given them both a terrible beating. You keep out of there, she told the oldest girl. Don't you poke your faces where they are not wanted. I asked the children if they had been forbidden to go into the cellar, and they said they had, but they forgot the injunction. Bodies in the cellar! H.H. Holmes had his murder castle in Chicago, where some bodies were sent down to the basement, and Bell had her murder farm in Indiana, where some bodies were probably sent down to the cellar. I wonder if Holmes at least partly inspired Bell, by the way. I mean, she did live in Chicago the entire time H.H. Holmes had his murder castle. She knew he preyed on lonely women, and then took their money, made them disappear. He also worked off of, you know, written correspondence to lure women to Chicago. The Holmes story broke in 1893. Holmes had started making women disappear sometime between 1885 and 1890. Bell moved to Chicago in 1881. She was there the whole time this went on. It was big news, big gossip. And then she kills her husband, Mads, in 1900. She has her own murder farm up and running smoothly by 1904. Interesting coincidence at the very least. I, I bet he at least partly inspired her. The Gunnis and Lamphere drama continues into the spring of 1908. A Ms. Bertha Schultz, a clerk in the Chicago Leader, dry goods store on Main Street, who frequently waited on Mrs. Gunnis, reported that during the last week in April, 
Bell had come in looking very distressed. When Ms. Schultz asked what was the matter, Bell recounted her troubles with Lamphere, describing the things which he did to harass her and declaring that he acted as if he knew something about her and that he was bold and annoyed her repeatedly. The next day, she comes back in the store, venting more about Lamphere, saying, uh, this clerk would later say, she told me that she feared he would someday set fire to her home and that he would murder her and her children. Very specific. She also told a lawyer in Laporte, uh, M.E. Leitler, uh, le- oh, fucking these names. The leader, fucking whatever. She told a lawyer named Emmy the L- L- leader that she feared for her life and that of her children. She also referenced here that Ray would kill her family and burn her house down. Do you really think Bell was afraid of Ray Lamphere? I don't. Does it seem like she's kind of going out of her way to make sure that everybody knows she's worried about him burning her house down and killing her and her kids? It, it does to me. I think this Ray Lamphere fear neighbor. Fear narrative, all part of Bell's exit plan. Bell told Bell, God damn it! Bell told the lawyer, the leader. I should just read uh, my notes. Just, just uh, do the tales like this, just to make sure I'm accurate. Bell told the lawyer, the leader, she wanted to make out a will in case Lamb fear. Would that be fun? Uh, went through with his threats. The leader complied, drew it up. She left her entire estate to her children and then departed the leader's offices. She did not go to the police to tell them about Lamphere's allegedly life-threatening conduct. Why not? Because he wasn't threatening her. She was just setting the stage for another arson, a big finale. After drawing up her will, telling everyone who would listen how scared of Ray she was, Belle purchased candy cake and a toy train at a Laporte General store, telling the clerk, Marie Farnheim, that she was going to give the children a little treat. Then she purchased a large quantity of groceries, also picked up two gallons of kerosene. Bell arrived home around 5.30. Farmhand Joe Maxson helped her with her purchases, carried the oil can into the house, stowing it uh, in the uh, entry under the back stairs. An hour later, he and the family sat down to a supper of bread and butter, dried beef, salmon, beefsteak, and potatoes. Everyone showed a fine appetite, Maxson said later. We all had a couple helpings of beefsteak and a lot of cookies and jam. By 8.30, Maxon was having trouble staying awake. Bidding the others good night, he headed for the stairway. The last I saw of Mrs. Gunnis, he recalled, she was sitting on the floor with her daughters and son, playing with a toy engine and passenger coaches that she had bought over that day. Young Philip was almost five. Myrtle was 12. Lucy was 10. Based on what's going to happen soon, this is so fucked up. I, I just can only imagine what's going on in her head as she is playing on the floor with her own children that she knows... She will be murdering in a few hours. Joe Maxson suddenly awakes in the early hours of April 28th, choking and coughing. His room filled with smoke. The house is on fire. He yanks on his boots, starts kicking and pounding the door that separates his room from the main part of the house where Mrs. Gunnis and their children slept. Joe tried yelling fire, but the smoke was too dense. He could hardly breathe. After trying to kick in the front door, he grabs an axe from the tool shed, chops out a panel. Then part of the flaming roof collapses onto his bedroom floor in his boots and underwear. He leaps from the second story window of his room, barely surviving the fire that was closing in around him. He runs into town to get help. By the time the old-fashioned hook and ladder fire department arrive at the farm, there's nothing left of the farmhouse but smoking ruins. Four bodies are found inside the house. One of the bodies was that of a woman who could not immediately be identified as Gunnis since she was missing her fucking head. That's right. Her head was gone and it would never be found. The bodies of her three children, Myrtle, Lucy, and Philip are found in their beds and identified 
Maybe they'd fallen unconscious due to smoke inhalation. Maybe Mama Gunnis had given them some nighttime strychnine syrup to help make sure they never woke up. County Sheriff Smutzer had heard about the Lamphere's alleged threats, quickly sought out the henchman. Lawyer M.E. LeLeader came forward to recount his tale about Gunnis' will and how she feared Lamphere would kill her and her family and burn her house down right on cue. Then young John Solem said that he had been watching the Gunnis' place and that he saw Lamphere running down the road from the Gunnis' house just before the structure erupted in flames. Lamphere snorted to the boy, you wouldn't look me in the eye and say that. And also that is kind of weird where it's like this happened in the middle of the night. Why was this guy just sitting around watching the fucking road? And then uh, when Lamphere says, you wouldn't look me in the eye and say that, he says, yes, I will. You found me hiding behind the bushes, told me you'd kill me if I didn't get out there or didn't get out of there. Uh-huh. I, I just doubt this. This is just a weird confession to me. Very convenient. Based on all the evidence, Lamphere arrested and charged with murder and arson. And then scores of investigators, sheriff's deputies, coroner's men, many volunteers begin to search the ruins for more evidence. The body of the headless woman presented some investigatory problems right away. Lamphere burning the house down to commit a revenge-based killing only makes sense if that body is the body of Belle Gunnis. If it's anyone else, then Belle has gone missing the night her house is burned down and kids are killed and she becomes the obvious prime suspect. Nosy neighbor, Chris Christofferson, that farmer, took one look at the charred remains of the body and said, no way. There's no way that's Belle Gunnis. So did another neighboring farmer, L. Nicholson. So did Mrs. Austin Culler, another friend or neighbor, I guess, friend kind of, she really didn't have friends, of Gunnis. More of Gunnis's acquaintances uh, Mrs. May Olander, Mr. Sigward Olson arrived from Chicago. They examined the remains of the headless woman. Also say, no way, not Gunnis. Doctors then measure the remains and making allowances for the missing neck and head. Stated that the corpse was that of a woman who stood five foot three inches tall, weighed no more than 150 pounds. Friends and neighbors, as well as the Laporte clothiers who made her dresses and other garments, swore that Gunnis was taller than 5'8 and weighed between 180 and 200 pounds. Detailed measurements of her body are compared with those on file with several Laporte stores where she purchased her apparel. When the two sets of measurements are compared, the authorities conclude that the headless woman could not possibly be Belle Gunnis. Even when the ravages of the fire on the body are taken into account, the flesh was badly burned but still intact. Also, Dr. J. Myers examines the internal organs of the dead woman, sends her stomach's contents to a pathologist in Chicago who reports months later that the organs contain lethal doses of strychnine. Clearly, Bell poisoned some other woman, cut her head off, put her body in the house before setting the fire. And then more incriminating evidence begins to spill forth from the crime scene. Uh, Azel uh, Hegelian arrived in Laporte and told Sheriff Smutzer that he believed his brother Andrew had met with foul play at Gunnis' hands. Then Bell's farmhand, Joe Maxton, comes forward with information that could not be ignored. He told the sheriff that Gunnis had ordered him to bring loads of dirt by the wheelbarrow to a large area surrounded by a high wire fence where the hogs were fed. Maxton said that there were many deep depressions in the ground that had been covered by dirt. These filled-in holes, Gunnis told Maxton, contained rubbish. She wanted the ground made level, so he filled in the depressions. Sheriff Smutzer took a dozen men back to the farm and began to dig into these holes. On May 3rd, 1908, the diggers unearthed the body of Bell's daughter, Jenny Olson. We knew she never made it back to California. She'd been chopped into roughly a dozen pieces. Right around the time they unearthed her body, she would have been 18, would have turned 18. Then they found the small bodies of two identified children. Yikes. Then the body of Andrew, uh, his body had been dismembered and decapitated. 
As days progressed and the gruesome work continued, one body after another discovered in the Gunness hog pen. Most of the remains found on the property could not be identified. Because of the crude recovery methods, the exact number of individuals unearthed on the Gunness farm is unknown, believed to be approximately 12. The Bell Gunness horrors became front page international news. Big-time newspaper men from all over converged on Laporte, writes one historian of the crime. Seven Chicago papers had a total of 22 reporters on the ground. Others arrived from New York, St. Louis, Detroit. There were 35 in all. The Chicago American, within the space of a few paragraphs, branded her as both the most fiendish murderer of the age and the most fiendish murderess in history. Even after the fire and Bell's alleged death, the letters kept coming in from wealthy men looking to partner with her. At least one man was scheduled to meet with Bell the week of the fire. Saved almost certain death by the flames. Human remains continued to be unearthed. Bodies were found wrapped in gunny sacks. Quick lime had been placed in the sacks, but had been uh, poorly applied to the bodies. Many pieces of flesh clung to the bones where the lime had not been, uh, had not eaten. As the leg bones were drawn out, marks in them revealed for the first time the horrible, insane anger with which with uh, the woman worked over her victims. About the joints, she had hacked them with an axe. The bones had been crushed on the ends as though they had been struck with hammers after they were dismembered. Two of the skulls were near each other. They had been buried face up. There was immediate media speculation that she faked her own death and Bell Gunness sightings began to, re- uh, began to be reported right away. There were so many alleged sightings and even several arrests of women who are definitely not Bell that one Indiana newspaper would jokingly av- advise all large-sized women to stay at home so they are not mistaken for Mrs. Gunness and held by the authorities. The Gunna store became such a huge media sensation that the Lake Erie and Western Railroad had arranged for special excursion trains to bring visitors to LaPorte from Indianapolis and Chicago. Roughly 20,000 visitors descended on LaPorte to see the murder farm. Newspaper commentators compared the scene to a county fair or to a Sunday amusement park. Vendors calling their wares through megaphones peddled peanuts, popcorn, lemonade. Beside one of the graves where the moldering remains of two of Bell's, Bell's victims had been unearthed, a portly fellow named Mand, excuse me, a makeshift refreshment stand dispensing pink ice cream and cake. Ignoring guards at the site, scavengers climbed into the ruins of the cellar and emerged with whole bagfuls of debris. Other men hopped into the open graves and groveled in the dirt for ghoulish keepsakes. Many of the families who arrived in the morning, in the morning brought along lunch baskets. At noontime, they spread tablecloths on the lawn beneath their fir trees in the front yard or on the grass of the apple orchard and settled down for their meals. For two weeks, paper had been gleefully, uh, papers had been gleefully exploiting the tragedy. Such was the era of festivity that one would have thought the Gunness Farm contained a circus rather than a murder morgue, reported one paper. Man, you guys know I have no problem talking about true crime. Obviously, that's what we're doing right now. True crime stories, big part of time suck. We joke around about it, but this to me is so extra fucked up. Like they're, they're still unearthing recent victims and motherfuckers are selling popcorn and hot dogs, souvenirs. People, people are stealing grave dirt. I always think about things like this when I hear people talk about how depraved society has recently become. Now we still have a long ways to go to reach this level of depravity. I mean, it seems that 1908 culture a lot more fucked up in certain ways than, 19, than a 2009 culture. I mean, just imagine if a new serial killer was caught. They find a bunch of bodies in a basement or backyard somewhere. And then all of a sudden, there's some kind of dark carnival, some kind of fucked up farmer's market out front. Get your elephant ears. Get your elephant ears. I hear the heads they found 20 minutes ago in the attic don't have their ears, but I do. Ha! 
Elephant ears to munch on while you look at cold corpses. T-shirts. Get your T-shirts. All shirts say how to kill a time in Rocktown. On the back in today's date. And on the front they say, instead of getting raped and murdered by the Rocktown Ripper, all I got was this lousy T-shirt. The bodies they keep digging up might be cold, but these T-shirts are hot. Hot dogs. Get your fresh all-beef grass-fed hot dogs. Just because a neighborhood boy's body was found two minutes ago and his hot dog had been cut off and stuffed in his mouth after he'd been raped and killed doesn't mean you can't stuff a tasty hot dog into your mouth. Hot dog, grab these Rocktown murder dogs before they're gone. <laughs> I mean, that scene I just described doesn't sound any more distasteful than what actually happened there. And I made up Rocktown, by the way. That's just a random example. I don't want you fucking Googling, where the fuck is the Rocktown Ripper? Now back to even more evidence of Belle having set the fire and killed her children. Gunnist dentist, Dr. Ira P. Norton, said that if the teeth dental work of the headless corpse could be located, he could definitely ascertain if it was Belle. A local white-haired prospector named Louis Schultz, known to his friends as Old Klondike, spent Monday, May 11th constructing a sluice box. His sluice box was a narrow wooden trowel, about 12 feet in length, and arranged at a downward angle on the ground. And how great is this character, by the way? Are you kidding me? A prospector named Old Klondike just showed up? That's how we like to track in this case, Old Klondike's here. Right after there be gold or silver or teeth and then their dirt, Old Klondike will surely find it or my name isn't well. It's in Old Klondike. Right, back in the spring of 1849, I found three gold nuggets and four sets of teeth before breakfast one morning just outside of Sacramento, California. Big horse teeth, little chicken teeth, straight teeth, crooked teeth, shiny teeth, rotten teeth. Old Klondike knows his teeth. And he'll find him in some mud like a hog finding troubles. Whiskey, laudanum, teeth. While Old Klondike worked, Joe Maxson and a few other men began hauling shovelfuls of ashes from the cellar of the incinerated farmhouse, dumping them into a big pile beside the contraption. The next day, with the water wagon supplying the necessary steam or stream, excuse me, Schultz began the process of washing the debris in search of Bell's gold teeth. For over a week, they find nothing. On Saturday, May 16th, local attorney, Wirt Warden, Wirt the Squirt, flatly declares to the press. That evidence is now being deliberately manufactured to make it fit the theory of the detectives. He's worried that someone will plant some teeth on the crime scene. It would make their jobs easier since now they'd have someone to blame for the murders, his client, Ray Lamphere, someone they already have in custody, way more satisfying than if it were Bell. There was no doubt in his mind, said Warden, that the gold teeth of Mrs. Gunnis with special identification marks of the dentist will be found. And again, he's saying this is all going to be a big plant. And then just before noon on Tuesday, May 19th, Worden's prediction is fulfilled when moments after shoveling a large load of ashes into a sluice box, Schultz comes up with a pair of dental bridges consisting of two human canine teeth, their roots still attached, porcelain teeth and ground and gold crown work in between. In the end, pieces of upper and lower dental bridges are found. Dr. Norton has no difficulty identifying these uh, prosthetic teeth. The upper bridge was the work of another dentist. Bill had it fitted in, uh, in Chicago before moving to LaPorte and was wearing it when Norton first examined her. As a result, Coroner Charles Mack officially concludes that the adult female body discovered in the ruins is Belle Gunnis. Get the fuck out of here. They never found her head. And, and the body wasn't even burnt bad enough for people to not be able to identify it. And what, her entire skull is just magically completely just disintegrated in flames? Completely? But conveniently, the teeth are left almost unscathed? No. Charles Mack, I don't know if he got bribed or something, or maybe Charles Mack was a fucking idiot. Days later, Friday, May 22nd, a grand jury returns indictments against Ray Lamphere, charging him with arson and first-degree murder of Bell Gunnis 
and of uh, the three children and Andrew uh, Hegelian. On the afternoon of Wednesday, June 17th, under the supervision of Undertaker Austin Cutler, the remains of the woman officially identified as Belle Gunnis, along with the corpses of the three Gunnis children, loaded onto the Lakeshore train to Chicago. At 10 a.m. the following morning, the four bodies unceremoniously interred in the Forest Lake Cemetery. No service is conducted. No relatives are present. Not even Belle's sister, uh, Nellie, you know, attends. She didn't think the body was her sister. She thought her sister killed those kids. Most people weren't buying that Gunnis had killed herself. At least 75% of the people in and about Laporte are convinced that the arch murderess is still alive and in hiding, wrote journalist Arthur James Pegler. Interviewed in his cell on the eve of his trial on November 8th, Ray stoutly maintained his innocence as he had from the start. He had been incarcerated for six months at this point. He says they can twist and turn the evidence all they like, but if they prove that I set fire to that house, they will have to do it by false testimony. Proceedings get underway on the morning of Monday, November 9th, 1908. The trial rages for four weeks. The prosecutor sets out to prove that Ray burned the house down for revenge, and the defense tries to prove that Belle is still alive, and she set the fire herself. Lamphere's lawyer, Wart Warden, Wart the Squirt, developed evidence that contradicted Norton's identification of the teeth and bridgework. A local jeweler testified that though the gold in the bridgework had emerged from the fire almost undamaged, the fierce heat of the, con- of the fire had melted the gold plating on several watches and items of gold jewelry. Local doctors replicated the conditions of the fire by attaching a similar piece of dental bridgework to a human jawbone, placing it in a blacksmith's forge. The real teeth crumbled and disintegrated. The porcelain teeth came out pocked and pitted with the gold parts rather melted. Right? The hired hand, Joe Maxson, and another man also testified they'd seen Klondike Schultz, old gold Klondike, take the bridge work out of his pocket and plant it just before it was, quote, discovered. Damn you, old Klondike. All right, listen here, Tarnation Hellfire. I didn't plant those teeth. I didn't plant those nuggets back in Sacramento like, like folks said I didn't either. I found those teeth in the dirt, fair and legal, or my name ain't old Klondike. Your name isn't old Klondike, it's Lewis Schultz. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that is my name. Okay. He caught me. I planted him. Uh, it took the jurors 26 hours to decide their verdict. Uh, 7 p.m. Thanksgiving Day, November 26, 1908, they find Ray Lamphere guilty not of the murders, but of only arson. In the end, they just didn't think Ray killed Bell and the kids. I guess they did think he was somehow involved in the fire. Judge Richter sends Ray to the state prison in Michigan City for an indeterminate term of two to 21 years, finding $5,000, disenfranchised him for five years. Ray wouldn't finish the minimum sentence. He died of tuberculosis on December 30th, 1909, but not before he confessed some super amazing details about Bell's final Laporte con. On January 14th, 1910, the Reverend E.A. Shell came forward with a confession that Lamphere is said to have made to him while the clergyman was comforting Ray on his deathbed. In this confession, Lamphere revealed Gunnis' crimes and swore he was that she was still alive. Lamphere stated to the Reverend Shell, and to a fellow convict, Harry Meyer, shortly before his death, that he had not murdered anyone, but that he had helped Gunnis bury many of her victims. He explained how Bell would usually kill. When a victim arrived, she made him comfortable, charming him, cooking him a large meal. Then she drugged his coffee, and when the man was in a stupor, a stupor, she split his head with a meat chopper. Other times, she would wait for the guy to go to bed and then enter the bedroom by candlelight and chloroform her sleeping victim. Remember when that one dude woke up with her with the candle? Ugh! A powerful woman, Gunnis would then carry the body to the basement by herself, place it on a table and dissect it. That's why she wanted those kids in the cellar. She then bundled the remains, buried these in the hog pen and the grounds about the house. 
Bell had become an expert at dissection thanks to instruction she received from her second husband, Peter Gunnis, a butcher. He, he said her position of choice or poison of choice, excuse me, was strychnine. And then she also varied her disposal methods, sometimes dumping the, corp, dumping, dumping the corpse into the hog scalding vat and covering the remains with quicklime. Man, I'm on fire today. My mouth just will not cooperate. It's not for lack of effort. Lamphere even stated that if Bell was overly tired after murdering one of her victims, she merely chopped up the remains and in the middle of the night stepped into her hog pen and fed the remains to the hog. So how many victims completely disappeared thanks to those hogs? Ray also cleared up the mysterious question of the headless female corpse found in the smoking ruins of the Gunnis home. Ray said Gunnis had lured this woman from Chicago on the pretense of hiring her as a housekeeper only days before she decided to make a permanent escape. Gunnis, according to Lamphere, drugged the woman, bashed in her head, decapitated the body, took the head, tied weights to it, dumped it in a nearby swamp. Then she chloroformed her children, smothered them to death, and dragged their small bodies along with the headless corpse to the basement. She dressed the female corpse in her old clothing, removed her false teeth, placing these beside the headless corpse to assure it being to assure that it was a, would be identified as Bill Gunnis. She then torched the house and fled. Maybe old Klondike didn't plant those teeth. Who knows? Who knows? Lamphere had helped her, he admitted, but she, but she had not left by the road where he waited for her after the fire had been set. She betrayed him by cutting across open fields and then disappearing into the woods. Cracks me up if all this is true, that she's, you know, throwing him under the bus, getting him all kinds of legal trouble while secretly possibly working with him. I mean, maybe he really was just kind of that dumb. Maybe he loved her that much to go along with some crazy plan of hers that made no sense, but she sold it to him. You know, she was very manipulative. Lamphere said that Gunnis was a rich woman. She had murdered at least 42 men by his count perhaps more, I think definitely more, if he's again telling the truth. Because she was killing guys way before he came into the picture. He also said uh, she had taken accounts or amounts from these guys ranging from $1,000 to $32,000 and allegedly had accumulated more than $250,000 through her murder schemes over the years. A huge fortune, about $6.3 million in today's dollars. Local banks later admitted that she had indeed withdrawn almost all of her funds shortly before the fire. I mean, she was rich. This confession, plus the banks admitting she withdrew her money right before the fire really seals the deal for me. I mean, think about it. She disappeared with roughly the equivalent of $6 million. Holy shit. Bucket Hall's twig daughter feasted on caviar and young heart dip for the rest of her life. She won the murder game. Uh, the body believed to be that of Belle Gunnis was buried next to her first husband at Forest Home Cemetery in Forest Park, Illinois. So now that we have all this DNA technology, why, why don't we just dig it up? See if it's someone other than Belle. Well, that was done. On November 5th, 2007, 2007 the remains were dug up with the permission of descendants of Belle's sister. The headless body was exhumed and uh, in- inspected by a team of forensic anthropologists and graduate students from the U- University of Indianapolis. It was initially hoped that a sealed envelope flap on a letter found at the victim's farm would contain enough DNA to be compared to that of the body. Unfortunately, not enough DNA. So, uh, you know, the efforts continue to find a reliable source for comparison purposes. They weren't able to find anything conclusive one way or the other. Damn it. As DNA technology evolves, maybe that'll change. And while our Bell Gunnis tale doesn't end with this inconclusive, you know, examination of what was supposed to be her body, this time suck timeline does end. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. So whatever happened to Bill Gunnis? She was only 48 the night she either disappeared or burned up in that fire 
It's pretty safe to say she didn't burn up. She had a lot of money, could have comfortably lived another 30, 40, maybe even 50 years or more. She could have hopped on another boat, started a new life once again back in Scandinavia or any number of other countries. Maybe she found a new murder scam to run. Maybe she just enjoyed getting away with a whole bunch of murders. Her kids, killing her kids is what disturbs me the most about Belle. If she could make enough money off of your death or it benefited her in some other way, like helping her escape, then she just killed you. Even if she'd raised you. Raising kids, apparently not much different from raising hogs, like I said before for Belle. I can't believe I'd never heard of her also until about a year ago. And only because many of you wrote in requesting a Belle gun as time suck. I, I feel like if she'd existed 20 years ago, committed the same type of murders, she would possibly rival Bundy for, for serial killer infamy. I guess you could say the same about H.H. Holmes. Uh, serial killers like H.H. Holmes and Bell Gunnis disturb me kind of more in certain ways than killers like Albert Fish, Showbiz, or Bundy, or, or Dahmer. I mean, those guys, is, those guys acted primarily on psychotic sexual impulses, right? Like, you know, they used sex to dominate. There was a sexual element to their crimes. Yes, it was about power as well. There were crimes of, you know, super dark, super fucked up passion in some way. It was as if those guys really did have some kind of dark passenger inside of them, a dark passenger with sick, perverse desires, and they would brutalize others to temporarily satisfy those desires. Bell, it seems, just wanted to get paid. She didn't seem to have a type in that way. You know, like Bundy, Bundy looked to rape and kill primarily petite, brunette, attractive women, generally college-age women with long hair parted in the middle. I mean, if you Google his victims, it's, it's pretty creepy how similar they looked to each other. Bell would kill whoever she could make a buck off of. Didn't matter if you were a husband or a guy she just met or a kid she was raising or a woman whose body she could use to fake her own death or maybe some other random kid that maybe saw something and could have been a witness. I mean, who knows what, who those kids were that ended up on our murder farm. Everyone was a possible means to a, to a dark end. So Belle Gunness became a legend that in modern times, we've almost totally forgotten. She was a ghost story for decades, had myths built all around her story. Her tale was a fascinating one. The, the first for sure female serial killer covered here on Time Suck. Maybe second if you count Madame Delphine Lalaurie, but the evidence less conclusive with her, as we learned. Uh, and I'm sure Belle won't be the last. Oh, I guess also maybe third if you count Elizabeth Bathory, but she also may not have killed anyone. Uh, Lizzie Borden doesn't count. She wasn't a serial killer. She was just like a, a, a really bad daughter. Now let's take a few looks back at Paul's twig daughter's terrible life today with top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, Gunnis. Uh, you know, she might be one of the best cases of someone who has zero fucks to give in the history of that concept. She killed husbands, randoms, dudes looking for her to, to love them, her kids, possibly other people's kids. She invested money she made off of murders to buy advertisements to murder more people. She successfully funded her life through insurance fraud via murder and arson, and it worked, and she got rich. Number two, opinions regarding Belle Gunness's physical attractiveness varied wildly. Some contemporaries thought she looked like a baby-footed, beady-eyed, fat-handed swamp troll. However, she had no shortage of suitors, and the one description we have of her bedroom abilities is that she was a sexy beast. Belle may have been beautiful. She may have not. And who cares? She had something much more powerful than physical looks. She had charm and lots of it when she wanted to turn it on. Her letters illustrate her manipulative abilities and the pretty diabol diabolical meatball she had rolling around in her skull. Number three. Not easy to fake one's death, even in 1908, but Belle did it. Really adds an extra element to today's tale. Uh, number four, nicknames. Belle Gunness had a ton of nicknames. The Indiana Ogress, Lady Bluebeard, The Widow of the Midway, Lonely Hearts Killer, Hell's Bell, Toadface, excuse me, Toadface, Paul's Twig Daughter. What if she became a murderer because she was so pissed over being called Paul's Twig Daughter? Be kind with your nicknames. 
You never know who they might send off into a murderous rage. Here at the Suck Dungeon, we have a, a lot of nice and thoughtful nicknames. Like Queen of the Suck, Suck Master, Script Keeper, Micropene. Number five, uh, new info. Let's talk about Esther Carl- Carlson. Esther Carlson, a Scandinavian immigrant, uh, long suspected of being Laporte's murderous bell gunnist. Check out what Esther was up to right after Bell disappeared in 1908. Her first husband, Charles Hansen, drowned only nine months after she married him. Her second husband, Charles Carlson, whom she married in 1911, passed away in 1925 after 18 months of illness, possibly due to poisoning. A man living with her family, Gustav Alzen, died after allegedly committing suicide by swallowing a bottle of strychnine. Her husband's close friend, August Lindstrom, died suddenly in 1931 with enough arsenic in him to kill 40 people. Later evidence linked Esther, who was oddly benefited by Lindstrom's will to the purchase of the poison. After she died of tuberculosis awaiting trial for Lindstrom's murder, authorities tried to check her body to see if she really was Bell Gunnis, a serial killer whose body was never positively identified. One Laporte witness who claimed to have been the only man alive to see Gunnis escape the night of the fire said both women possessed the same peculiar twist to the mouth and had the same high cheekbones and eyes. And eyes. A picture of three children also found in Esther's trunk Two witnesses said they looked like Gunnis's three foster children. Carlson claimed she had never ha- uh, had any children. So why was this picture of three kids, uh, what was it doing in her trunk? Kind of suspicious. Pat Schaller, a descendant of Lindstrom, and Suzanne McKee, a descendant of Gunnis' sister, Nellie, both believed the two women were the same, but they weren't the same person. A few years ago, Norwegian murder researcher Newt Eric Jensen proved just that. Newt is a native of Selbu, Norway, the hometown of Bailey Gunness, and it proved that Esther was a separate person before 1908. Jensen dug up the marriage certificate between Esther Johnson and her first husband, Charles Hansen. The date, 1907, a year when Gunness was known to have been alive and well in Laporte, Indiana. And on top of that, a Michael Burns, who claimed to have been married to Esther's sister, handled Esther's funeral arrangements and identified the body as being that of his sister-in-law. Records later confirmed that Burns lived in Hartford and was married to a woman with the maiden name of Johnson. We still don't know what happened to Bella in 1908, other than knowing that there's no way that she died in that fire. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Bell Gunnis sucked. Another murder log thrown into the time suck. True crime fire. Sorry about a little extra mush mouth today. And again, kind of like I pointed out last week, there really is nothing I can do about it. Some of you guys, oh, actually, if you just worked on, no, shut the fuck up. You know? trying to get a lot of information out there. And I feel great today. Nothing's going on, but you know, sometimes the words, they just don't come. But I realize that not, the most of you don't care about it uh, that much. And you understand that, you know, we, we do our best here. Thanks to the Time Suck team. Thanks to the Queen of the Suck, Lindsay Cummins, High Priest of the Suck, Harmony Camp, Jesse, Guardian of Grammar Dobner, Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley, Time Suck High Priest, Alex Dugan, the guys at Bit Elixir, Danger Brain, Access Apparel, Thanks to Heather Knowledge Ninja Rylander for the initial research and Zach Scriptkeeper Flannery for further research. Next week, we take a break from the long reign of true crime here on The Suck, beginning at least a two-week-long break. Going to be talking about lost technologies. No topic has ever won a spaces or vote by such a wide margin. Are today's technological advances really the peak of science and technology? Almost certainly. But many great civilizations have risen and fallen, and sometimes when they die, their secrets die with them. Damascus Steel, Greek fire, Roman cement. These are some real for sure technologies that existed that we're not sure if we figured out today, they may have been lost forever. We haven't been able to exactly replicate them. And then there's wild speculation about other things that may have existed, like some type of flying machines in India, uh, some kind of old Greek computer, 
These are hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Some type of Middle Eastern battery, ancient birth control medicine, and more. Did that stuff really exist? Was it more advanced in some way than things we have today? We're going to look all over the world. We're going to learn so much. So get in here and learn with us. And now let's learn what I messed up recently and learn some additional details to previous sucks on today's Time Sucker Updates. Updates. Get your Time Sucker Updates. Tristan Spencer, Time Sucker, knows a lot about sports and murder. We said last week in the top five takeaways that O.J. Simpson ranks second all-time behind Robert Rozier on the list of former NFL players who stabbed the most people. Turns out he's no better than a distant third. Tristan wrote, you forgot the I-5 killer. The I-5 killer was drafted by the Green Bay Packers in 1974 and played for Portland State College. Good call, Tristan. I did not know that. Uh, Yeah, though Randy Woodfield was only convicted of one murder, he has been linked up to a total of 18 and is suspected by some of having killed up to 44 people along the I-5 corridor connecting Washington, Oregon, and California. And yes, he was drafted by the NFL in 1974 to play for the Green Bay Packers, was cut from the team during training camp before ever playing a single game because of a series of indecent exposure arrests. And it appears he used a knife for many of his rapes and murders. And there's just too many dirtbags to keep track of. Didn't even know about that guy. Might have to do an I-5 killer suck someday. Uh, OJ info coming in from time sucker Eric, Eric Ebel. There we go. Eric writes, hey, Dan, great job in the recent OJ suck. And Eric put a little pronunciation guy in there. Appreciate it. I had a supplemental story I thought the cult of the curious would appreciate. In the late 1990s, I was working for KXLY Television in Spokane as an assignment editor. And yes, now knowing, now knowing you were getting your start in Spokane at the same time, I sincerely regret making bad decisions at Outback Jacks and Fast Eddie's. Nice, Fast Eddie's. Instead of seeing you perform at the uh, sports page. Uh, what was it? It wasn't the sports page. It was season ticket. But I know what you're talking about. You know what? Actually, I think it might have been also been called a sports page. You're right. Anyway, I was an assignment editor at the TV station and the KXOY radio booth was literally 10 feet from my desk. It was about that time that local longtime talk show host Mike Fitzsimmons tried to boost his ratings by making then Sandpoint, Idaho resident Mark Furman his new co-host. Fitzsimmons, famous for his 56-hour nonstop broadcast during the eruption of Mount St. Helens, which, by the way, would make a great suck. Yeah, agreed. For at least a year, Furman's desk was between mine and the studio, meaning that I sat about five feet from the guy for at least two hours every weekday. I never really tried to strike up a conversation with him, given that I'd seen the OJ trial and really didn't care for his arrogance. But the station ran Seattle Mariners games, and we'd often make baseball small talk while staring at some monitor uh, about, you know, of Brett Boone or Mike Cameron drilling another one out of the park. Oh, I remember those days. The best part of the story is that one day while I was outside having a smoke, Furman, Fitzsimmons, and a few guys from the station were heading out to a charity golf tournament. I overheard them laughing as Mark Furman joked that he was going to use a single black glove as a ball marker. <laughs> At the time, I thought that was pretty tasteless. Now, it's still tasteless, but also pretty funny when you think about it. Keep up the great work. Can't wait to see you again when you're back in Tacoma, Eric Ebel. Ah, thank you, Eric, for sending that in. That's interesting, you know? Yeah, these people having, as the suck spreads, there were some updates I, I wasn't able to get to because they were more involved for this week, hopefully next week, where it's pretty amazing how far the suck is reaching now. And we just, you know, whatever story we do, we seem to have people like, oh, I actually worked with the guy at this job that ended up getting arrested. Or I'm friends with the daughter of this person, you know, on and on. Uh, I hope that just continues. I need to show uh, West Virginian time sucker Chad Piercy some love here in this update. Chad writes, salutations, Meister of Mushmouth Mountain. I'm listening to your podcast. Uh, I've noticed that you don't seem to to be keen on people from West Virginia in general. 
That's fine. I'm not here to start a fight. However, I do find it important to tell you that we are your kinfolk and mushy mouthness. There is a road here called Chauvet de Frise, which has been mushed mouth through generations of hillbilly cousin fuckers to simply being called Shiver de Freeze. No shit, he says. I fucking, I love it. I can say Shiver de Freeze. I can't say that French Chauvet stuff. It is uh, a road in a town with people that would refer to Riggins, Idaho as the big city. Just wanted to pass that along for your amusement. Keep doing you. Keep on sucking Hail Nimrod. Hail Nimrod. Chad, and I love West Virginia. Sorry anything else came across. Uh, Idaho is the West Virginia of the West. And you guys are just as mush-mouthed as me. And I feel very at home there. Some of the best times I've ever had in stand-up comedy happened when I was in Pullman Square, the Funny Bones, no longer there, in Huntington, West Virginia, right across the river from Ohio, Tucky. And now a can- canker sore update. Coming in from Darlene Sinclair to help anyone else afflicted. Darlene writes, hello, Suckmaster. My daughter has turned me on to your podcast and comedy. She's a space lizard and huge fan. Also working on a career as an actor and stunt woman. We're coming to your show in Hollywood, but that's not why I'm writing. I'm trying to catch up on all the time suck episodes, but I had to jump ahead and listen to the OJ suck. You mentioned when you talked about being mumble-mouthed that you suffer from canker sores. I too was plagued with these for years, but discovered what has been an almost 100% cure. An ingredient in most toothpaste, sodium laurel sulfate, will cause these sores and keep them going. Also known as SLS, most toothpaste contains this. Trader Joe's and Whole Foods carry brands that don't. But read ingredients because even some quote-unquote natural toothpaste contains it because it's derived from coconut. Also the com- oh, I wonder if I stopped drinking coconut milk. Damn it. Also the combination of nuts and chocolate can create canker sores, so steer clear of those when you have an outbreak. Hope this helps. Hail Nimrod. See you August 29th. Yes. It does help, darling. I now brush my teeth with Closis. Closis fluoride toothpaste. C-L-O-S-Y-S. And I use Closis mouthwash. Lindsay and I can't find it at the store very often. I just ordered more off of Amazon. Sometimes you can also get it from your dentist. It's the only toothpaste I have found that doesn't fuck my mouth up. Also, if you have canker sores, stay away from acidic food and drink. Uh, I don't eat tomatoes anymore or drink bottled juice, especially citrus or drink soda. And I even barely have tomato-based sauce anymore. It sucks, but it's better than having canker sores, uh, you know, for anyone else dealing with that. So thank you, Darlene. And I hope that knowledge helps some of the rest of you. Last update from Gary Carr. A little something to give you some nightmares. Gary wrote, good morning, you glorious sucking God. I was listening to the Vietnam War episode this morning and I was on the fence about believing you about the petite mantis hornet. At first I believed you, then I didn't, then I did. So I Googled it. Well, there is a mantis wasp hybrid looking insect in Vietnam. It's called the mantid fly. It has the same characteristics of the wasp and of the mantis, but is not related to either. I'm sending a photo of the mantid fly. Thank you, Gary Carr. And Gary, I thought you were just fucking with me. I looked it up. Yeah, it's real. And it's scary as hell looking. Luckily, they do not sting. However, there is a chance that they do work with other mantid flies to lift up your eyelids and crawl inside your head. And as far as I know, they might try and crawl into people's vaginas and pee holes and, and, you know, and ears and buttholes. So when you look up a picture of one of these little monsters, I can't emphasize enough how important it is for you to think about these little critters crawling inside of your body. Uh, (laughs) Thanks for all the updates. Thanks, Gary. Thanks to everyone who sends in Time Sucker Update messages. Thanks, Time Suckers. I needed that. We all did. Have a wonderful week, Meat Sacks. Come up with a better financial plan than murdering your family and strangers for insurance money and keep on sucking. I wonder how much money I could get for killing Lindsay, 
and Kyler Monroe. I know we have some kind of life insurance. Let me pull that up. Huh. Huh. Really? Wow. Wow, that is way more than I thought. Uh, looks like I got a new project. Well, we're moving on up. Get rid of the fam. Live alone and be so wealthy. I'm moving on up. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate. Pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.